This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. This Damian Lillard standoff is got my attention. It has my attention. Why? Because you're caught in the middle of it. I posted a column today at johnconzano.com about the maid at what was previously the Rose Garden Arena. used to be called the Rose Garden. I don't know if you knew that. Before it was the Moda Center. Most of you did. But Sarah Farfan and her husband were housekeepers at the arena. And they made $11 an hour. 11 bucks an hour in 2007. Blazers were, uh, you know, in a rebuild of sorts with Travis Outlaw on the roster. And I only bring him up because one evening after a Blazers game, Travis Outlaw dropped a $100 bill on the carpet in the locker room at the Rose Garden Arena. Just walked off without his $100. And Sarah Farfan and her husband, well, they were the two housekeepers that would clean up the locker room. They'd pick up the tape. They would dust they would mop they would clean the mirrors they would vacuum the carpet you know and they would leave it in pristine condition for the team the next time they came back to the building eleven dollars an hour keep that in mind sarah and her husband had no health insurance they had no automobile they had to get dropped there by a family friend every night and then picked back up and again they're working like uh, graveyard hours because they would show up in the wee hours after a game. It was like a 7 o'clock game and ended, the post game, the locker room, the arena's clearing out. You know, it could be like 11 o'clock by the time Sarah was going to work and her husband. Uh, Sarah's husband also badly needed eyeglasses. Again, didn't have health insurance and weren't making very much money. So they go into the locker room that night and they stumble upon the $100 bill that has been dropped in the carpet. There's no one else around. It's just them. It's a crew of two. And they have in front of them essentially nine hours of work laying on the carpet. And, you know, a real need. Like, you could probably make an argument that some people would go, hey, this is uh, this is God's way of putting a $100 bill right in front of me. We need eyeglasses. We don't have insurance. We don't have a car. Uh, this, thank you very much, that's a couple of tanks of gas back in 2007. Uh, Sarah Farfan picked up the $100 bill. She showed it to her husband. They decided that, uh, that it must have been an NBA player, a Blazers player who had dropped it 
There are no cameras in that locker room at the time, but they decided to turn in the $100 bill. They took the bill, they got a piece of paper, they folded it, they put the bill inside the blank sheet of paper that was folded in half, they left a note uh, to whom it may concern. This was found on the carpet, looks like it was one of the players who dropped it, and they went home after the end of their shift. Now, it was called to my attention because at the time, you may remember that the Trailblazers had thrown the bankrupt, the uh, the arena into bankruptcy, and they were. Um, it was a pretty dark time in Blazers history, and uh, there was a company that had taken over running the Rose Garden Arena, and the general manager of that operation mentioned it to me in passing one night, like, "Hey, hey, we got the best people. You know, we have the best employees who work at the arena, even after closing." And here's this great example of a woman and her husband who are making $11 an hour who find this $100 bill and then decide, you know what, we need to turn this in. It's the right thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. It's the honest thing to do. And so I said, hey, man, um, could you get me in touch with her? And I ended up writing a column about Sarah and her husband and sort of the uh, the goodness that is out there, especially at a time when I think a lot of people were questioning the organization on the court, questioning whether Paul Allen wanted to own the team, I can remember that, you know, at that era and that time, it was just, there was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of discord. And the franchise was trying to rebuild with good young players, had some good young pieces, but largely uh, was messy. And uh, the subsequent day, Travis Outlaw shows back up at the arena. He finds the $100 bill. He claims it. He says, that's mine. Uh, and he decides that he's going to give $20 as a finder's fee to Sarah and her husband. So I include that in the column, the original column that I wrote. Hey, Travis Outlaw gave her $20 as a finder's fee. I kind of thought, you know, he's making $4 million at the time. You know, I don't want to tell anybody how they should tip. I don't want to tell anybody what they should do. But I can remember thinking at the time, like, gosh, that's a little bit tacky, like an NBA player giving somebody who's making $11 an hour 20 bucks, But Sarah and her husband were happy to have the 20 bucks. Like, literally, they were like, hey, that's dinner. And uh, so the, the story ended, except I wrote it, and uh, the subsequent aftermath of that was amazing. It was one of the best stories that I have ever written from a standpoint of, like, how it made me feel. And, and it really was a testament to you. Fans and sports fans in the Pacific Northwest. Really. It was my first really indoctrination into how different sports fans really are in the Pacific Northwest. I had covered basketball in the in the Midwest. I'd covered Indiana basketball and in Purdue. Gene Cady, Bob Knight were the coaches at Purdue and Indiana. I'd covered uh, you know Notre Dame football as a beat reporter. I had covered Major League Baseball, the NFL. I had covered multiple Olympics by that point, and it really was an early. Uh, sign just five years into uh, into my tenure that you are different because in the Bay Area, I'll be honest. If I write that same column about the 49ers locker room, uh, people notice it. People think it's a good story. People smile and then go about their day. But what made the Pacific Northwest fan different was how you reacted, and the subsequent 900 emails that I got. The voicemails that I got from people's just, you know, the effusive praise they had for Sarah and her husband were amazing. I had a a doctor, an eye doctor, reach out and say, I'll give a free exam, give him a free pair of glasses. That was awesome. 
Uh, but it was the mailbox that really got me. The mailbox it, at the office started getting letters about two days after the column was published. The letters started showing up. They were often handwritten. They often included a blank sheet of paper inside and a $100 bill. And they kept coming. And sometimes the letters were just envelopes addressed to me with a $100 bill, but I knew who it was for. It was for Sarah, and it was for her husband. By the time I finished opening all the letters over a number of days, I had a pile of $100 bills that totaled $6,000. $6,000 in cash, all in $100 bills, all earmarked for Sarah and her husband. I reached out to Sarah. I said, hey, I got a surprise for you. Can I drop something off to you? I didn't tell her what it was. Sarah said, sure, come over. I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. I arrived at their home in southeast Portland, and uh, they were having kind of a family dinner. There was, you know, some kids around, and you know, it looked like uh, they had some children that were in their 20s and maybe some grandkids, and, you know, I just thought it was a really cool scene. I did not go into the house. Sarah invited me in for dinner, and I said, no, 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 I, I can't stay, but let me just tell you what happened. And I handed her a pile of letters, and I handed her $6,000 in cash, and I watched the housekeeper who worked the locker room at the Rose Garden Arena cry on the porch of her house because she was so moved by the reaction that fans had had to her. I try to tell people how different you are. I try to tell them about all the stories that I've written in the, in the ways that you have demonstrated that you're different. Uh, Ronald Miller, I wrote about, uh, I was covering the Oregon football game down in Houston when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Ronald Miller was a linen factory worker in New Orleans who saved a bunch of kids and rescued a bunch of kids and took them to Houston and then reunited them with, with their families. And, you know, he had a nickname. His, people called him Rescue Ronald. I wrote about him. What happened? Readers banded together and said, we'd like to do something nice for Ronald. He did something nice for other people. We understand him. And 24 readers who wrote, who wrote, read my column banded together and committed to baking donations over a 12-month period that would help educate Ronald, get him out of the linen factory, rent him a house in Houston, and put him through an air conditioning and heating, uh, you know, trainee session and and get him certified as a uh, HVAC contractor who could go out and get a job, like a real job, a career, a difference maker. These stories have happened again and again and again, and it's why I say you're different. You're different. You just are. I write that same stuff in the Bay Area. People say, nice story, move on. I write that same stuff in the Midwest. Maybe they're moved to a larger extent, but they you know, they would say stuff like, well, that's, a, that's what Indiana fans do. We rally around our... Our, our people, but I think people in the Pacific Northwest, you just root for each other. And I know in the last couple of years, it's probably been really difficult for people in this region of the country to kind of look up and see how you are portrayed nationally on news stations and on reports and in the papers and certainly on television as, you know, a bunch of bad stuff was happening in downtown Portland over the years. And, you know, the brand of the city was uh, was essentially destroyed. Much in the same way that the Pac-12 conference got destroyed. I mean, it was just an obliteration of the brand of the city of Portland. And the Pacific Northwest was indicted in a number of ways. Homelessness, graffiti, violence, lawlessness, lack of leadership at City Hall. All of that stuff you've endured. But I can tell you that you care about each other 
more than people in other places do. You just are. You're bonded to each other. You appreciate each other. I know this. I've seen it firsthand. I also know that your sports teams have been difficult. It's why the Mariners' success, I think, this year, and maybe last year too, is so, uh, is so fulfilling for Seattle Mariners fans. It's why when the Seahawks win, it makes people who have suffered for so many years with the Seahawks feel happy about it. It's why Sonics fans, I think, are still heartbroken and holding on to hope that an NBA franchise will be returned to the Pacific Northwest and create that rivalry again with Portland. It's why Blazer fans, who have endured Bill Walton's feet and Sam Bowie's uh, shattered tibia and Greg Oden's knees and a 15-point blown lead in the Western Conference Finals, continue to show up every season and root and care for their teams. Now, I mentioned off the top of this uh, this uh, segment that I wrote a column today about Damian Lillard. And I want to unpack this just a little bit because the Lillard fiasco or the Lillard conundrum or the Lillard debate or the Lillard soap opera, whatever we're going to call this thing, the standoff that he's got going on with the Trailblazers, is going to result in a very public collision at some point. This is like an asteroid heading towards planet Lillard, or Lillard is the asteroid and it's planet Blazer, and fans are going to get caught in this. Because if you'll remember, when Lillard was drafted in 2012, it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to him. He was a chip-on-the-shoulder, small-market guy who grew up in Oakland but went to Weber State, didn't exactly have the spotlight on him in the Big Sky Conference, but shined enough to get Chad Buchanan and the Blazers scouting staff to pay attention and to watch him. And Dan Dickow will tell you the story that he and Chad Buchanan were scouting Lillard and watching him play in a Big Sky Conference game and going just, wow, like this guy's going to be a star. This guy's going to play in the NBA. And Portland drafts him with a number six pick, makes him the guy, and brings him into Portland and sets him up largely for the success that he has enjoyed. He is a big fish in a small market. For all the Blazers of the past who had complained about the fishbowl that Portland was, remember that? Oh, it's such a fishbowl. Oh, you're focused on us. Oh, we're in a fishbowl. This isn't like L.A. or New York or Chicago. This is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. Everybody's always watching us, catching us doing bad things. And I can remember saying, hey, why not turn that into a positive? Why not turn it into an opportunity to say, hey, catch us doing the right things. It's a fishbowl after all. And Damian Lillard, I think, was one of the best at capturing that fishbowl and making it his. He rose to a position and a status with the Trailblazers organization that he would not have attained anywhere else, not in a bigger market. He made more money. He got more minutes. He had the ball in his hands. His face was on the side of the grain silo. It was his team. It was his identity. He's got a you know Toyota dealership and uh, the love of fans everywhere. And, you know, and he earned that with hard work. And he earned that with great play. And he also earned it because he was a guy who preached loyalty and preached that, you know, he was committed to the fans and committed to the city. And I'll tell you, going back to that housekeeper and the $100 bills, that spoke to people, I think, in the Pacific Northwest in a way that maybe uh, nothing else ever could or ever would. He was a star that was made for Portland. And in the end, we are now watching that same guy who, by the way, in the, the, the season of 21-22, 2021-2022, he played only 29 games. He had the abdominal injury. 
He ended up in that July signing a two-year extension uh, that netted him $125 million, and it was more money that he could command anywhere else. It was a smart move by his agent. It was it was uh, a move that was going to get him another 80 or $90 million, more than he could probably get if he were a free agent on the open market. And Damian Lillard uh, took the money, and then subsequently a year later has now said, trade me, and here's my list of teams, Miami. That's not a list. I wrote it today. That's an order. You know, a list is, hey, I'll go here or here or here, do your best. Uh, you know, it's been nice knowing you. Now, I do want to step back here for a moment because, you know, Blazer fans I still think are largely connected with Lillard. I've, I've discovered that in talking about him on this radio show and having people call in. I think my, my market research, however informal it is, suggests that Blazer fans largely believe that they are in it with Damian Lillard still, and they still like him, and they still want it to work out well. I think there is a growing faction of Blazer fans who are getting annoyed that this could come to a head, that this uh, asteroid, so to speak, could strike the planet at some point. But I think there's still some people out there that are holding out hope that Lillard some, you know, what if he sees the light and ends up playing alongside Shaden Sharp and ends up playing alongside Scoot Henderson and wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see? And as much of a pipe dream as it sounds like, and it is a pipe dream, um, I do think there's a faction of fans out there that are hoping for that outcome. Meanwhile, the Blazers organization, if it were in the hands of Phil Knight, if it were in the hands of an owner that uh, was ambitious, of an owner that was uh, willing to go for it, I think that the Blazers organization uh, would be nowhere near the predicament they're in today. I think Lillard would be happier. He'd be in training camp. He'd be surrounded by better players. He'd have a chance to win. So I do think there's some empathy in the fan base for Lillard, in part because you've been through this with Damian Lillard. You're living it. You're living the same bleep storm, so to speak, as uh, the Washington State president said on yesterday's show. There's, uh, there's a lot to this Lillard thing, but I'm here to tell you that I am fascinated. I am downright fascinated by how this is going to work out because you have a fan base that I think is loyal to a fault, a fan base that loves hard, that, that uh, out- overvalues its players, a fan base that will show up 3,000 strong at Pioneer Courthouse Square to welcome Greg Oden to town, a fan base that will go to the airport to greet Rudy Fernandez when he joins the team, a fan base that kind of lives and dies with the players and the teams and 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 the seasons, but also kind of loves Damian Lillard a little bit it, to the point of there's going to be a conflict internally in the fan base because I think this is creeping towards uh, Damian Lillard and the Blazers in a staring contest or potentially – uh, you know, a training camp or a season that could start with Lillard saying, I'm not going to be part of it. What will fans do then? Will they applaud Damian Lillard? Will they decide that, uh, you know, $450 million in our loyalty, you know, that's not enough for you? Will, will there be some pushback ultimately? I think it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. I am fascinated by it, and I think that, uh, you know, it's going to be a sideshow that goes on uh, as the college football season approaches. That said... I wish it didn't have to be this way. I wish that Willard was happy being in Portland. I wish it was her, his forever place. I wish that, you know, his his promise of, hey, I'm going to uh, stay loyal, I'm not like other players, had been, had been uh, something that he didn't change his mind on. 
I also wish that the Blazers organization wasn't in the hands of Jody Allen or Burt Cold. I wish it were in the hands of a competent ownership group. I think if it were, it would be a different outcome. And I wish that uh, there was more than one team out there that Damian Lillard had given the Blazers the option to trade him to. There should be multiple teams bidding for Lillard's services and, and bringing the Blazers better offers. But that's not where we are today. I think it's going to be a crazy sideshow. And I think we're going to learn a little bit about Damian Lillard. I think we're going to learn a little bit about the Portland Trail Blazers. But I think we're going to learn a lot about fans and allegiance and loyalty and this Pacific Northwest fan base. I wish you luck because I think you're going to need it. we got a great show for you today. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be with us. Anthony Gold, wide receiver at Oregon State, will be with us. Plus, uh, coming up, I will break down the Oregon Ducks season What are my expectations, my hopes, my dreams for Dan Lanning's second year? I'll do the same with the Beavers. And later in the program, you'll hear from John Wilner. He and I broke down all of the Pac-12 games today, and he had some interesting things to say about the Ducks, uh, their game against Portland State on Saturday, and the Beavers on Sunday. He's smelling an upset. I'm not, and we disagree about it. You'll hear from John Wilner later in the show. Leave it here. Anthony Gold, wide receiver, Oregon State, is next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, every season on this show, we invite an Oregon and an Oregon State player to be a regular guest. This year's uh, Beaver that you're going to get to know better all season long is Anthony Gold, wide receiver. He's got some local connections. Uh, This segment is presented by Jamba. Life is better blended. Anthony Gold, wide receiver, Oregon State, joining us. Uh, Look, Jaden Grant was the Jamba guy last year, Anthony, and he he said, uh, Anthony's got to be your new Jamba guy, so you got to give him a a fist bump when you see him. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I already gave him some love for, uh, you know, setting me up with this opportunity, so I'm grateful to be here. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Hey, look, are you paying attention to the NFL waiver wire? It looked like Jaden got waived yesterday, but he's going to be added to the practice squad in Las Vegas. And Do you keep tabs with those guys? Oh, yeah. You know, I definitely try and uh, check in every now and then. Um, You know, those are my my guys for life. So, you know, between him, Alex, uh, Ray, uh, Treshawn, T. Wayne, you know, all those guys, um, you know, I try and check in on them. Uh, And it's cool to see that, you know, some of those guys are – you know, making their way in the in the league, and um, you know, some some have you know lost their opportunity, but you know, there's going to be more opportunity on the way. So I'm I'm happy for those guys. Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of. I always like to follow guys as they make the next step. Um, speaking of the next step, it looks like DJ Uyengalele will be the starting quarterback on Sunday. Uh, we're gonna have Jonathan Smith on your coach later in the show, but give us an idea from your standpoint. You saw him in scrimmages. You saw him in practices. What separated DJ? Um, I think it was just a decision-making at the end of the day. Uh, you know, having a, a group of guys, um, you know, we can all feel like we can trust on him uh, to make the right decision. And, you know, that's not taking anything away from Aiden or, or Ben. You know, those are two other guys that I think could go to, you know, almost any other program and, you know, push a, push their case for being a starter. Um, but, you know, just, you know, his, his decision-making and being able to, to move around on his feet will be a, will be a big benefit for us. You got a chance to see this week's week one opponent play USC. What'd you see of San Jose State on film? 
Oh, I mean, I mean, I think they're a good, they're a well-coached team. Um, you know, we're, we know we're going to get. There's not too much disguising or, you know, too too much fancy stuff on defense. Um, you know, they play simple and they play fast and they play hard. So, you know, just locking in on the stuff we need to do, um, you know, going out there and executing on, you know, the stuff we need to do. And um, I think that's what, what will help us win this game. You know, they got an advantage going in. You know, they've already got a game. So all the first game errors and mistakes, you know, they've already got all that corrected. So, um, you know, as long as we execute and do our job, you know, I think we'll be fine. Give me an idea because, you know, you've been in the program several years. You had an opportunity to grow a little bit. How has your approach changed? Meaning, like, you know, where you find yourself this year versus other years. How have you changed? I think really just mentally. Um, I think that's where I've, I've really improved the most. Uh, obviously, physically, with, you know, cleaning up the route running and, you know, stuff like that. But I think mentally, you know, the last couple of years I've taken, you know, a big leap. And I think that that's just a huge testament to, you know, Coach Smith, Coach Fence, Coach Lindgren. Uh, but I think mentally, the, you know, my my game has really improved. Um, and it just when it, when that happens, the, the game slows down, you know. And it's like I, I don't want to say it's like playing high school ball again, but you know, it slows down so much that it's almost like playing high school ball again. So, um, you know, being being in tune with myself mentally on and off the field has really has really helped me. In the opener last year, you had a 74-yard pass against Boise State. You had an 80-yard punt return against Montana State. Uh, you had uh, you had big plays all season long. 55-yard punt return against Cal for a touchdown. It, you, you look back um, at the season and you see big plays. I want to go back to the playground when you were a kid. Were you always the fastest kid in the elementary school? <laughs> yes, sir. I've always been the fastest. So I actually used to I used to play soccer a little bit when I was little. And they used to call me freight train. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make much sense to me now. Yeah, not the biggest guy, but <laughs> uh, you were moving. Kind of funny, just exactly. Yeah, just to think about that. Uh, probably could have came up with a, a better name for me. Uh, you know, being the size I am, but uh, no, nah, I just I think it's funny. I've always always been you know this speed, and uh, you know it, it's a blessing. You know, because you you can't teach it. So. I'm going to call you Freight Train from now on. Anthony Freight Train Gold is our guest. Uh, when all right, so was there anybody close to you though on the playground? Was there like a did you have a nemesis that was like a step slower than you that you were always battling against, or were you just like always the fast kid? Oh yeah, I mean there was always one or two that you know kind of give me a little little run for my money, but for the most part, I've always kind of been you know the fastest of any school I've been to. Um, you know, growing up all the all the time. So uh, there was a few, definitely, but uh, no, I was definitely probably the fastest I'd say everywhere I've been. I want to ask you. You know, the the Oregon State will sometimes play with a chip on its shoulder. I've seen you guys walk in that way. Hey, nobody's respecting you. You're down 17 in the fourth quarter to Oregon. You just keep playing. You come back. Uh, the the Pac-12 stuff goes on and disintegrates. Is there an extra chip on your shoulder or? Is that a potential distraction that you guys just don't want to deal with and you just must stay focused and not make it a distraction? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I, you know, with some people feeling like, you know, we're kind of, we were kind of left out to dry, you know, and um, there wasn't too much opportunity that, that we were given as, a, you know, just Oregon State as a as university. But, uh, you know, it does take away from things. And at the end of the day, that's not going to happen until next year. So we have to just focus on this year, and that's something that we've kind of just been uh, harping on in the locker room is just, you know, yeah, we can use it as a chip on our shoulder, but at the same time we can't talk about it so much that 
it's going to start causing distractions within the team. So we definitely use it as a as a field of the fire, but it's not too much to where it starts to be a distraction uh, in the locker room. It's going to be a day game, too. I love that. I love that you're going to play on a Sunday afternoon, and you'll have the stage to yourself. You've got a big TV audience. What is that What is that going to be like for you? Do you do you like day game, night game, have no preference? Uh, if it's a way, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a day game guy. Uh, just because those flights home, getting back at 2, 3 in the morning, it's brutal sometimes. Um, but, no, nah, it'll be nice. You know, you can't, especially being a, a wide receiver, you know, it's going to be warm, and it's going to be the middle of the day, and, you know, that's all you dream of when you're fast, being able to play in that heat. So, um, no, nah, I definitely definitely am a day game guy, I would say. The offense this year, will it will it resemble the offense of last year? I mean, you got the same coordinator, different quarterback, same offensive line coach. I'm going to assume you guys are going to try to have the same kind of identity you had before, but every team's a little different. You've You've been around. What do you think the identity of this team is, or how is it different than maybe a year ago? Honestly, I think it's I think it's about the same. You know, we're gonna run the ball, and if you can't stop the run, then good luck. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think we'll definitely. Uh, you know, we'll we'll we've been working on all, all summer off season is you know our vertical game down the field. That was something we felt like we kind of lacked uh, a little bit at times last year, which is being able to push the ball vertically down the field. Um, so being able to parry, uh, marry that with the with the run, um, you know, it should set up a lot of opportunities down the field. But uh, I think we're we're still the same team. You know, we're going to run the ball, and if you can't stop it, then it's going to be a long day playing us. I keep hearing people say that this San Jose State game could be a trap game for you guys, that San Jose State's got a game under their belts, they're playing at home. But, uh, you know, I think if you take care of the ball, you have better, you have more talent, you get the better team. Um, do you see it as a trap game at all? I mean, not really, no. Um, but at the, at the level we play at, Every week is a trap game, whether you're playing a, a, a good mm. team or not. You know, every, anyone can get beaten at any any given Saturday. So, um, you know, you just got to take it week by week. Uh, we're definitely not overlooking these guys. Um, you know, you just can't do that at this level. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a trap game uh, just because, you know, we're focused and we know that they're a well-coached team and they play hard. So it's going to take everything we have to, to do to be able to beat them. Um, but, no, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a trap game necessarily. You've watched uh, Research Stadium get rebuilt, and you've been there this whole time. Give me an idea mm-hmm. from your standpoint what it's been like to walk into that stadium and see it go from, you know, it was outdated, you know, when you arrived, and then it was torn down, and now it's rebuilt. Like, you've been there for the transformation. Oh, yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's, it's definitely cool to see. Um, at times, you almost forget about, uh, you know, what the old side looked like, and, um being able to see like the the difference of when I first got here compared to when it was torn down and then looking at it now it's it's amazing and I think it, it's definitely good for you know Beaver fans and uh, student athletes and you know everyone just involved in the in the community and university um, just because you know that's that's part of theirs too and you know being able to see that I'm it makes me excited just because I know how loud it was last year with half the stadium um, I think they they said they put new some new metal to where it'll echo more, so hmm. I'm excited to, to see how that is. Um, but no, it's definitely been it's been humbling and it's been an amazing experience just to see how much we've developed as a, a university and a program. The you know the school won't start for you for a while, but what's your class schedule going to look like this year? Are you are you one of these online course guys that's taking yoga and and living a good life, or what are you taking? <laughs> uh, so I'm actually working on a certificate in. Uh, 
student education, so working with students in higher education. Um, nice. I got my degree in business administration already, so, um, yeah, I wish I could say, uh, you know, I was one of those guys just take yoga online, but uh, nah, I'm actually <laughs> working on a certificate. Last <laughs> year we had, are all yeah. online, so. <laughs> we had Bo Nix and we had Jaden Grant last year, and it was like between them they were taking ballroom dancing and yoga and you know, a lot of online this and online that. And I was like, that is a pretty good schedule. Uh, what made, what got you interested in, in education? Um, I've always kind of want to be uh, something involved with, you know, really coaching on the coaching side. Um, but, you know, just being, you know, administration, just how that works and the breakdowns of, of that between athletic and just regular uh, school administration, it's always kind of interested me. So, um, that's something I've kind of been always a little interested in. Um, so just being able to, you know, get something, a degree or certificate uh, showing that, you know, I can, I have that um, part of my resume as well. Um, I thought it would be good for me. That's really interesting stuff. Good stuff. Anthony Gold is with us. He'll be with us all season long, Oregon State wide receiver. This segment is brought to you by Jamba. Life is better blended. Anthony, before I uh, cut you loose, uh, you go into Jamba. What are you ordering today? I'm gonna give me uh, I think a, a mango go go, uh, and I'm gonna add uh, yeah I'll add some pineapple to it every time. <laughs> I love that. I love it. All right, we'll get you going all season long. Uh, I appreciate you joining us. Good luck on Sunday. I'll see you at the stadium in San Jose and uh, and give them hell. Yes, sir. Oh yeah, hey. I will. Thank you. All right, Indeed. Anthony Anthony Gold. There he goes. Fastest guy on the playground. Fastest guy on the show. Allegedly. Uh, good stuff from him. All right, coming up, I will give you my breakdown of the Ducks and the Beavers week one. What am I looking for? Where are my eyes going? Uh, I will talk about the Beavers. I will talk about the Ducks. That's next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Week one of the college football season is here. I, I got to be honest with you, as I look at the schedule of week one games in the Pac-12, I think it's going to be a pretty good week for the Pac-12. Of course, there's some interest in Coach Prime and what happens at the Colorado TCU game. Of course, uh, I think a lot of people will always be interested in USC and Caleb Williams as long as they remain undefeated this season. But I want to focus for a moment on the two Pacific Northwest teams. I want to focus on Oregon, Oregon State, and mix in a little bit of Portland State as well. We heard Bruce Barnum on yesterday's show talk about Portland State as they are going to be at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. Uh, by the way, Roxy Bernstein and Lincoln Kennedy will be on the call for the Pac-12 Network as Oregon and Portland State will be taking each other on in that game. Um, look, there's a couple things I want to point out about Oregon this season right up front. I think it's really important just to drill down on a couple of things that I really need to see this year from Oregon in order for this to be a successful season. We, it's very easy to say they need to win games. They need to get the conference championship. They need to get to Las Vegas. That's very easy, but it's an oversimplification. The first thing that Oregon needs to do this season has nothing to do with defense, has nothing to do with Dan Lanning and his coaching decisions, has everything in the world to do with Bo Nix. 
Last year, Bo Nix did not stay healthy. It was the biggest problem that Oregon had throughout the season. I think Kenny Dillingham got a little bit creative, a little bit cute, in trying to get Bo Nix involved this way and that way in the offense. And I think ultimately what we saw, like, and I don't think you could blame it on Kenny Dillingham, but we saw Bo Nix get hurt in the Washington game, and we realized how fragile Oregon's season is. If it can't keep Bo Nix healthy, there isn't going to be much of a season, and much of an upside to the season at least. There's a, there's a number out there that has been floating out there that I think is a very dangerous number for the University of Oregon. It's the number 15. Marcus Mariota set the all-time record at Oregon for rushing touchdowns by a quarterback with 15 rushing touchdowns in his final season. That is a record that Bo Nix threatened a year ago. He finished with 14. I think it would be really interesting and important to see Bo Nix not chase that record this season. And Oregon's offense to not rely upon putting Bo Nix in perilous situations that are especially needlessly perilous situations, particularly in the early part of the season. It's why I'm looking at the Portland State game. I'm looking at, you know, Saturday, and I'm seeing an opponent that Oregon should wake up and, and beat by three touchdowns and not make it much of a game, break a sweat, stay healthy, Get the offense going under Will Stein, but don't show too much to, to, to Texas Tech. There are going to be times at the season that Bo Nix needs to run with football. I'm not saying you don't run the guy. I'm not saying wrap him in bubble wrap and don't have him out on the field. But I look back to maybe the Justin Herbert final season at Oregon where he gets into the Pac-12 championship game and suddenly starts running against Utah, and Utah's defense was like, what? Where did this come from? I would love to see that at times this year from Oregon. But not consistently. You don't need Bo Nix running the football against Portland State. You might not need him running the ball against Texas Tech. You don't need him running against opponents like Cal. You don't need him running against opponents like Washington State. Save those opportunities where you're going to really go for it. uh, To the games that are limited to USC, to Utah, to Oregon State, to Washington. There are some occasions where Bo Nix is going to have to use his legs. So, again, I'm just saying, you know, that's a weapon, but it's not a weapon that I would like to see overused. And, you know, we watched Justin Herbert go down one season with a collarbone injury. We watched, uh, we watched Bo Nix last season really struggle, and it changed the complexity of Oregon's offense. The complexion of their offense was completely different down the stretch. They, they just weren't what they could be. Oregon is returning Bo Nix. It's returning its leading rusher in Bucky Irving. It's returning its leading receiver in Troy Franklin. It's got a quarterback that had 14 rushing touchdowns a year ago. Look out. That's a team that could be awfully dangerous. But it's not dangerous if Bo Nix is hobbling around the field. So it's why it's important in Saturday's game, as Oregon's you know, going to line up, break a sweat, uh, presumably end 1-0, and head off to the Texas Tech game, I think it's really important not to see Bo Nix running needlessly in that game. So keep an eye on that. I think that's a key to Oregon's season, and I think it's a key to Saturday's game. Of course I want to see the defense. Of course I want to see you know, whether or not Jordan Birch is going to be disruptive. Of course I want to see how many different receivers Bo Nix can get involved. Uh, I absolutely want to see if Oregon can make adjustments, because I do think that Portland State will throw some things at Oregon. Uh, you know, Bruce Barnum, if, if, if nothing else, is a very creative play caller who's not afraid to try some things. But I also think it's just important that Oregon remembers that its true identity lies in the fact that you need Bo Nix at his best. You need him healthy in the Civil War game at the end of the year. 
You need him healthy when you go to play Washington. What you don't need to do is end up in a situation where he's needlessly running and you know, you're trying to pile up stats or you're trying to get him in the end zone or maybe you're chasing a Heisman Trophy campaign in the early part of the season and you end up with a foot or an ankle or an injury or a thumb or a collarbone that is just unnecessary. And it crossed my mind last year in about week five or six. There was a game against Cal. Bo Nix was very active, threw a touchdown, ran for a touchdown. They were doing some really creative things with him that were fun. But I thought they were a little bit foolish. And, you know, the, the play against Washington, maybe it's a fluke play. I just don't want to see that kind of play happen in a game where you don't need it. Now, Bruce Barnum's an interesting study. You look at the Portland State football coach, and, you know, he came on yesterday's show, dropped some, uh, dropped some profanity, talked about, <laughs> talked about his season, talked about his approach. I want you to particularly pay attention to the fourth quarter of the Portland State-Oregon game. If, uh, if you are even watching a blowout and you're losing interest, stay with it in the fourth quarter. Take a look at how Barnum makes his personnel groupings and, and his personnel changes in the fourth quarter. Because I really do think Portland State thinks it's got a really good team. And I think it's become apparent that these payday games often translate as injury games in the, the world of Big Sky Conference football. These are where, you know, the Montanas, the Montana States, the UC Davises, the Portland States start to lose players when they play Washington, when they play Arizona, when they play Oregon or Oregon State. It becomes, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, little bit too much to ask. So keep an eye on Bruce Barnum because I think he's going to have some wholesale substituting in the fourth quarter of the game. And it could absolutely turn a three-score game into like a five-score game if you're, uh, if you're watching from home. So keep an eye on that. Oregon State is different. Oregon State is going to San Jose State on Sunday, facing uh, what will be the final season in the Pac-12 Conference as we know it. Talk to players on this team, including Anthony Gold, the wide receiver, who said, yeah, there's a little bit extra chip on the shoulder. I think it's really important that Oregon State plays with that kind of alacrity, that kind of focus, on a mission, week to week, They've got a little extra to play for, and I like that from Oregon State's standpoint. I think it's going to be a fun season for those reasons. But Oregon State's identity is run the football, play defense. And if we're talking about Oregon State having a true identity, like you look around, you find some programs in the conference that don't know who they are. You get to the end of the season, they don't have an offensive identity. They don't have a defensive identity. Oregon State knows who it is. It gets off the bus knowing they're going to run the ball, they're going to play defense, they're going to make you feel like you play a football game. San Jose State is a, a little bit of a trap game in that the Spartans have already played a game, and coaches will tell you week one to week two, biggest improvement. It's an advantage for the Spartans. They've got some guys, too. We saw it against USC. They can fly around. They can make some plays. They can hurt you if you, if you blow assignments. So Oregon State's going to have to be on its toes in this game. There's a huge there's a double-digit point spread in this game, and I don't love that from Oregon State's standpoint. I think it's going to be a much closer game than the point spread, especially at San Jose. But Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, it's a survive-and-advance operation for them at this point of the season. Chip on their shoulder, sure, it's fine if it's there. It just can't be a distraction. But DJ Uyunglele doesn't have to be on him this season. He doesn't need to come in like a lot of quarterbacks that are transferring into programs and carry the program and be the savior. He doesn't need to be that kind of guy. So keep an eye on that as the season unfolds because those things – as much as we could talk about Oregon State having a run-first identity or that they're a hard-nosed football team, you know, I'm looking at Oregon State and going, 
as long as they show up to play with a survive and advance mentality, they can keep this thing alive. Their non-conference schedule is very manageable outside of the San Jose State game. It's a little bit dicey, but I think they can handle it. But Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, you know, if they can get to week five, week six undefeated, look out. Because I think the rest of the country is dying to get on board, dying to get behind them, dying to make Oregon State America's team. If you think about it, they've been left behind in the Pac-12 conference. They've been forgotten. Washington State and Oregon State have no fault of their own have been clearly left behind in the Pac-12. So if you are Jonathan Smith, if you can get this team focused, if you can get some momentum, look out. Because it could be, like we've seen teams historically in Major League Baseball and in the NBA catch lightning in a bottle, Oregon State's got that kind of schedule, that kind of team, and that kind of chip on their shoulder. So keep an eye on it. All right, Stephen, I've got to ask you, how much of a, how much of a trap game do you see the San Jose State, Oregon State being for the Beavers? I think it's a little trap game, but I think the fact that it's on the road really makes it so the Beavers are focused. Um, you know, I thought Anthony Gould's answer was pretty interesting when you asked him that question. He, he, he started with a, no, it's not a trap game, but then he kind of walked it back and said, well, all the games are trap games. So it was almost like you know he was very very confident in, uh, in his, his team's uh, ability to go on the road and win that game pretty easily. But I'm with you. I, I, you know, watching San Jose State play, you knew offensively they could do some things. Now defensively, they're not going to be able to stop Oregon State in the way they pound the rock with that offensive line. But I, you know, I'll be interested to see how that defense reacts to a very veteran team out of San Jose State because I have questions about their defense, John. They lost a lot off that team last season. I know they, re- you know, they re- refilled and replaced them with a lot of new players. Uh, I want to see how good this defense is. I think San Jose State's actually going to be a good test uh, going against that offense in Chevin Cordero in Week 1. Yeah, you know, Caleb Williams said it, the USC quarterback. He said it at Pac-12 Media Day. He said that they were fantastic defensively last year, that Oregon State had better talent than he expected, and he said schematically they confused him uh, like other teams did not. And I thought that was a really interesting and astute observation or admission by Caleb Williams because – you know, you're talking about a team that had Jaden Grant, was a seventh-year senior in the in the secondary. It had Alex Austin, had Jack Coletto, who might be the smartest person in the stadium. He's like, uh, you know, he's like an engineering major who is, you know, disguised as a football player. They had some really smart football players on the defensive side of the ball. Will they play smart? Will they remember assignments? Because I saw you at USC blew some assignments, and it was it was seven points for San Jose State. They got the guys to hurt you if you blow the assignments. But I think it'll be really interesting to see can can Oregon State control Temple? Can they control the game? Can they control the ball? Can they suffocate you like a boa constrictor, like they did to Oregon in the in the in the Civil War football game? So that's their identity, and we'll see if they have it. Punch it audio is coming up. Jonathan Smith will join us in hour three. You got the bald faced truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm really excited. Colorado's going to play a football game this week. We can stop talking about whether or not Coach Prime is going to be a success or going to be a uh, guy who is going to endure some uh, growing pains. 
at Colorado. I've got him at three and nine. Steven, you want to give a final answer on Colorado's season? Yeah, I'll, uh, they're going over three. They're going over three and a half. I can't decide four or five. I'm going to go with, uh, I'll go five. I'm going to give five this year. You like them. I do. I'm worried about their depth. I am too, but I've, maybe I'm just buying into the hype. Like, you know, I'm watching, you know, his son's YouTube videos. I'm watching them at practice. Mm -hmm. He's bringing in a lot of Hall of Famers. To kind of motivate him, I'm getting motivated. You think Michael Irvin's going to play for Colorado? Warren Sapp was just there the <laughs> other day. Like, I mean, they're just yeah. they're hyping him up. I, I do. And here's the thing: I, I do like you know Travis Hunter's really good. Yeah, I'm I like him. I'm interested to see what Shador Sanders looks like. I do mm -hmm. think those skill guys. They got some skill guys. It's going to be a lot of shootouts for Colorado. It can they just outscore teams? That's going to be the way they win some games. Keep an eye on it. I got them at three and nine. And, and and look, they are getting twenty to twenty-one points in the opener at TCU. We'll give our official picks for these games on Friday. But uh, right now, I'm leaning TCU forty-two seventeen. We'll, we'll have to figure out a bet. If you know they go three and nine, I owe you something. Four wins, it's a push. Mm. Five wins, you got You owe me something. We'll figure something and it, out. What if they get zero? Then I what if I quit what do you the show have, probably no you have to get kidding. a tattoo that says <laughs> oh. go buffs go first, buffs on your on your uh, lower back my first tattoo all right no I don't <laughs> I don't want to do that I can't do that I <laughs> love it all right listen Jonathan Smith's coming up in hour three if you got a question that you want me to ask Oregon State's football coach tweet it at me at John Canzano BFT uh, before we go into punch it audio Damian Lillard um, talking in a podcast interview about some unfinished business. Now, Stephen, you read the column I wrote about Lillard today. I think fans are going to be in an interesting position here in the next couple of weeks. As training camp approaches, as the potential for this to get public and nasty uh, sort of accelerates, um, Damian Lillard and fans are in a complicated relationship. Keep that in mind as I play this clip. I mean, I think for, for all of us, we have things that we know we want to accomplish for ourselves and like he said it's a lot of times when it get hard and when it seems like it's getting further away and you're not getting to where you want to get to some people just fold they just give up and for me it's just so many things that I'm like I wouldn't even say I'm just checking off a box I'm just like I want to I want to do that yeah. I want to accomplish that even if it don't give me nothing in return it's like a level of fulfillment that I'll get from knowing like I battled through some I worked hard for it. Like I made my way there, and I, you know, I got to where I wanted to get to. So that's that's kind of my mentality. Where it's like you can reach a certain level of success in other people's eyes, and they'll be like, "How do you stay motivated?" But that's like that's their version of it. Mm -hmm. So what I got, what I want for myself, is just not what everybody else wants for me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So to them, it looks like it's so hard to keep going. You made all this money, you did this, you did that. But for me, that was never like the, the goal. That was never the target, you the know peak, what I'm saying? Yeah. So it looks that way to, to people on the outside. But to me, I don't even look at it like that. I'm just, I'm still running my race. What do you hear there? Uh, I hear that he wants to play in an NBA championship. And he wants an NBA title. He said at the end, money is not about money. Because if it was, he should be happy here in Portland. They've given him a lot of money. Um, and it, it goes... It goes against what he said before, how ring culture is not a thing and it doesn't yeah. really matter. He's really gone against that, which I don't have a problem with. Like, I understand the importance of Changed it. Changed his mind. 
Yes, but he has changed his mind 100%. And, I, and that's okay to change your mind. I think it's great. Uh, but I do think hopefully he embraces that. And he says, you know what? Yeah, like I want to leave Portland because they didn't put a team around me and I'm trying to compete for a championship. Well, and, that, and that's the conundrum that fans are in. Because on one hand, I think fans in Portland are – Blazers fans are particularly loyal to players. They overvalue their players. They love their players uh, to a fault. It, but this is a player who's saying – uh, you know, $450 million is not enough for me. Your undying love is not enough for me. This franchise hasn't delivered for me. And on one hand, I think Blazer fans are going to go, oh, yeah, I get that. It hasn't delivered for me either. And I'm stuck here, and I wish I could ask for a trade. Like, you know, I think pe- fans are going to feel that way. But on the other hand, I do think there is a little air of NBA ring culture coming out of Damian Lillard's pores right now. And it's a little bit of... You know, people don't understand what continues to drive me. Well, the money's not important because he already has the money. You know, if he didn't have the money, the money would be more important. It, and and that's the reality, as Lillard is saying, I want a ring now. Um, basically, he's saying, what he's saying is he wants it all. And I went back and looked at the timeline today of he signs, you know, the, the two-year extension, $124 million. Okay? He got more money in Portland than he could get anywhere else because it was the team that drafted him. Damian Lillard gets that money. The season before that, he played 29 games, and he had a torn abdominal muscle and ended with a surgery. And the franchise was very good to him. Blazers could have said, hey, we don't know what you're going to be coming out of that injury. We're not sure if you're going to be the same player, but they didn't. They said, we're, you know, we're pretty sure we're going to bet on you. And he was happy to have that contract. I looked at his comments in the wake of it. He talked about the name on the front of his jersey, not the name on, his, on the back. Like, he literally said that after the deal was announced. It was July 7th of 2022. He said, you know, it was the name on the front of the jersey, you know, Portland. And then in the end, he's going, you know, here I am a year later. Ah, I think I went out. I wonder, you know? I wonder if he were eligible for that extension right now, if he would sign it or if he would seem like, you know what, no, I'm not going to sign this extension because I know if I do that, it locks me into Portland or it locks me into harder to get out. Like, then he'd be an actual free agent and go where he wants. I wonder if it was just a year too late or a yes. year too early for him to make that decision because it does sound like he's changed his mind. He's done a complete 180. Yeah, he has done a 180. And and I think what he's run into, too, is a very atypical ownership management situation in Portland with Burt Cold and Jody Allen. They are atypical. They are not normal. This is a this is not an NBA owner. This is a trustee. This is not a NBA team president. Burt Cold's, you know, he was Paul Allen's roommate. And there's a little bit of self-importance going on and laced into that. And I think they're really going to work hard to not look stupid. And they're going to they're going to see it differently. They're not going to understand the culture of sports. And the, and Jody's not going to understand it, certainly. And she's going to say, he's an employee under contract. Why is he asking to be traded? And why is he giving us a list of one? Like, that's not how it works in the Vulcan world. And so I think they're going to get a little bit of pushback there, even if the advice they're getting in the basketball world is, hey, this is how it works in the NBA. The players have all the power. I think he's run into a very unusual ownership management structure in Portland that he probably now is going, I should not have signed that extension. They have the potential here to lock me in and force me to be here. And I had, you know, as I talked to Bob Witsit, the former Blazers president and general manager, you know, I said, what, what would Lillard do here? And he says he's not going to sit out. He says he's not going to give the money back. You can, you can tell that the money matters to Damian Lillard. You know, and the Blazers would be happy if he just said, okay, I'm going to sit out. And they don't have to pay him. 
You know, it, it it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds. All right, sad, just, I was yeah. gonna say the sad part for Blazer fans, it's like if you choose to go with management and you go against Dame, it's you're putting your trust in an untrusty oh. worth people. But if you go with Dame, then it's gonna slow down the rebuild process. If you wanna just give them up to Miami for whatever they have, you're slowing down the rebuild process of the team that you like and your favorite team that you love and you follow. It's just it's just a lose lose situation. It's just tough, man. And that's why I think I, I said off the top in my kind of my opening monologue is you know, Blazer fans are different. Fans in the Pacific Northwest are different. And it's great when it's working for you. When you're a rookie from Weber State with a chip on your shoulder, you you can do no wrong. And Damian Lillard did a lot of good things and showed a lot of loyalty to this point. But I think there's coming a day when Blazer fans are going to have to decide which side they're on here. And I'm not sure Lillard's going to get the vote. We'll talk about that and more later in the show. Let's play some Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. DJ Uyunglele is the quarterback at Oregon State. He says he likes his offensive coordinator. What does he like about him? Punch it. Uh, no, I just feel comfortable. I like the offense. Like I said, I love what Coach Lindgren's doing. Uh, he's a super easy guy to talk to. does a really good job explaining the offense, explaining what the quarterbacks need to do with the different checks. love how we have different checks versus defense without the alert play over different stuff in the run game, in the pass game, so it's been good. Oregon State offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren has got a weapon this year. He's got a quarterback who's got big game experience. He's got a run game. They don't have giant receivers. They've got Anthony Gold who can run. They've got some tight ends. I'm going to be really interested to see how this unfolds. But he's got a quarterback. They can go down the field a little bit. And Oregon State has not had a quarterback in Jonathan Smith's system that you could trust on an extended basis. Nobody like DJ Uyengalele. And so this is a real opportunity for Oregon State to maximize that position. As much as they've lost some key players, Luke Musgraves at tight end, who pretty much didn't play last season, lost some uh, key defensive players. Uh, as much as the, the losses become a focus as this team takes the field in week one, I'll also be looking at the guys who are new arrivals and have the potential to make Oregon State really good. Utah. May not play Cam Rising. A lot of lot of cloud out there. Maybe some rain on the Cam Rising front. Well, they will suit up tomorrow at Rice-Eccles Stadium. It could be Bryson Barnes as the starter. Josh Newman saying Barnes expects to be the starter. Punch it. You know, the expectation at this point is that Bryson Barnes will start a quarterback. Um, you know, this whole offseason, the number one, two, three, four story topic has been, you know, Cam Rising with the torn ACL in the Rose Bowl. And then, you know, pretty immediately, you know, you start looking at the timeline and what's it going to take for Rising to get back fully for the Florida game. Uh, you know, Kyle Whittingham said a number of times during the offseason and into the spring that his expectation was that Rising would, would be ready to go. And, you know, I don't speak for everybody, okay? I am generally willing to take Kyle Whittingham at face value. I don't feel like I'm being lied to generally when he when he talks, right? That's not the case for all college football coaches. But, okay, you know, that was the expectation. 
Bryson Barnes is going to have a game plan made for him. That's the difference. He's been on the field three times for Utah, once as a starter against Washington State last season, but it was more of as an, an emergency starter. And then he came into both Rose Bowl games in relief of Cam Rising as Rising got injured. So this is a opportunity for Andy Ludwig to game plan for Bryson Barnes. Point spread on this game is sitting at 6.5 right now. Florida is getting 6.5 points on the road. Well, I, I, I'm going yeah, to fix you on that. It's actually changed because of that. It's now Utah's 4.5 point favorites. 4.5. Crumbled down. Crumbled down to 4.5. I still I think Utah finds a way to win the game. I don't love the spread on this one, though, so I don't blame you if you're getting points. But I think Utah's going to MacGyver this thing, and the home field's worth something. And Bryson Barnes, I think he'll be a little better than expected, but uh, certainly a dicey opener and a dicey week two ahead as Utah will go to Baylor in week two. Uh, The Utes have a tough one in uh, week one and week two. Moving along, Joel Klatt talking about Colorado. He thinks their skill guys are really good. Punch it. They are as good as any top-end conference team at the skill positions out there. Okay, Their wide receivers are going to be really good. Their running backs, it's actually a really deep room, probably the strength of their team. Uh, Their linebackers and defensive backs, their safeties, their corners, like they can play at those areas. The question remains up front, what they're going to be, what the depth is going to be up front, how can they mask some inefficiencies on their offense and defensive line, which quite frankly is a similar question that a lot of teams have this time of year because there's only a small select few number of teams that can look at the line of scrimmage and say, yeah, we're ready to go for a college football year up at the line of scrimmage. That's going to be the question for Colorado. Colorado may have some skill guys, but do they have depth? Do they have an offensive line? Do they have a defensive line? Will Shador Sanders under pressure be good, be great, or be terrible? There's a lot of unknowns for Colorado, but there isn't a more intriguing program nationally. Uh, you know, Coach Prime was asked if he was feeling some pressure. He said, nah. I, I never feel pressure. We apply pressure. Um, I would like to feel real good, and I feel good about protecting two. You protect two, give them a clean pocket, it's going to be some problems. (laughs) Didn't sound confident in the uh, protecting two there, though. Protect two, give them some time. Is he setting it up already for the narrative to be, we we aren't protecting the quarterback? It sounded like it. In that clip, it does sound like, yeah, you know what? This offensive line may not be great, and uh, I'm not going to be blaming Shadour. So it's going to be on the offensive line's fault. Bruce Barnum on yesterday's Bald Face Truth radio show said he likes Dan Lanning. Why? Here's Bruce Barnum. Punch it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that sounds like a personable, you know, statement. I heard he fishes, so he can't be all that bad. (laughs) I like that. Bruce Barnum says he fishes. Dan Lanning heard about it. And responded. Two coaches going back and forth. Here's Oregon. Barnum said you're a good dude because you fish. Do you know anything about him? I, I know Bruce. We, we haven't got to meet a ton, but we bumped into each other in a couple satellite camps. I don't know if I fish enough for him to call me a good fisherman yet. So I'd like to see those two guys in a boat. Reality television show written all over it. Barnum and Lanning on the football field at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. I like the Ducks to win handily in that game. I think they have too much talent, too good. But I'm really curious to see what Oregon, or excuse me, what Portland State will look like this season in the Big Sky Conference. Good test for them to run around and see, uh, see uh, you know, a team that is playing at the next level. Finally, Harrison Bader 
He was in the lunchroom watching ESPN when he found out he was on waivers. Then he had a question. What are waivers? How did you find out you were put on waivers today? Um, I was in the uh, lunchroom. I saw it on uh, ESPN. I guess you know, I guess it popped up somehow over there, so that's how I found out. What was your reaction when you saw that news? Uh, like, what does waivers mean? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, look, you got to have a sense of humor about it. I think there are a lot of players who uh, are hopeful. They have hopes. They have dreams. Um, there's a lot of that going on in the NFL in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. But Harrison Bader finding out in the lunchroom that he was waived and wanting to know what does that mean might be right up there as uh, one of the best things ever said. Uh, let's go to Troy Franklin, Oregon wide receiver. What's he looking for in week one, game one? Um, not beating ourselves, you know, not like beating ourselves, no self-inflicted wounds. Um, just executing everything at a high level um, and doing what we know we're supposed to do against a team like Corner State. Keeping it clean, executing. The whistles and the flags that Dan Lanning talked about on this show last Friday. He said, you know, the stuff that happens between the whistles, pass interference, holding, you understand. It's the procedural stuff. Did we get lined up right? Did we get a delay a game? You can't have that. You can't have that be messy. Keep an eye on that. It appears as though that is a uh, uh, a big-time focus, point of, point of focus for Oregon. Shouldn't, Damn that, be, it? shouldn't yeah. that be the goal for both teams, though, Oregon and Oregon State? Like, no yes. on offense especially because we saw San Jose State's defense not great. We know what Oregon can do. Just no, just no bonehead mistakes. Just a clean game, and then and you come out of there with the win, and you feel good about yourself. And I think, too, you, you know, there, there's so much emphasis on you can't, as a coach, you can't control the stuff that is happening you know, uh, you know, as an offensive lineman is trying to make a block and he accidentally holds. Or you can't control somebody getting, you know, uh, a, a targeting call in the heat of action or pass interference call. But as a coach, you should be able to control the procedural stuff. Do we get the play in on time? Do we, uh, do we ever get a delay a game? Do we get lined up right? Do we get an illegal motion or illegal procedure? Like before the ball is snapped, you don't want to take plays away from your offense. Dan Lanning, though, talking about the, another focus, he'd like to possess the ball and also take it away from the other team. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we've shown our players. You know, there's more turnovers in college football in week one and then in the bowl week than there is uh, in any other time of the season. There's more missed tackles in week one and in the bowl game than there is any other time of the season. That's because of the long vacancy bef- between games. Um, so starting there. But ultimately, you know, college football is still about explosive plays and takeaways, right? So those are things that we want to create, you know, defensively as far as takeaways and offensively we want to create explosives. Dan Lanning wants to take the ball away. Uh, look, last year USC did it uh, at a really high level. I think they had a plus 22 on the turnover margin, led the country. That becomes the bar. Like, who can be that team this year? And granted, when you have a Caleb Williams run offense like USC did, it puts a lot of pressure on the other team to try to make big plays. And I think when teams are trying to make big plays, they get careless with the ball, especially passing. So I, I think you know Oregon could be that kind of team this season because they could find themselves, especially in the early part of the season, ahead in a whole bunch of games. Anna's popping into the studio. We'll talk about the college football experience at the stadium. We'll get your input on phone calls, plus the 5 at 5. All of that still ahead. 
back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's in the studio. Anna's in the studio. Anna's in the studio. <laughs> it's like when I was a kid, we go, Mom's home. <laughs> It's like you should have uh, that flashing red light and siren in Flesh Lives, you know, the one that he pulls out and sticks yeah. on his car as he's going to a faux news story. Do we need a code sound for the listeners <laughs> to alert them that Anna's in the studio? Yeah, so that you don't even have to say it. So if I slip into the studio while you're mid-thought, not that, that's annoying. No. No, I don't want to be a sonar. Um, how about we just do this? Is this more like you slipping into the studio? Yeah, I like that one. That, from now on... Uh, let me just do a couple more. Do you like that, Stephen, or you want to hear a couple more? Yeah, give me a couple more. Um, we could do something like... Uh, you could just play my cougar sound. You could just play my cougar sound. I think uh, I think Stephen has that one. I don't think we need to play that. I don't think we need to do that. Uh... We could do, uh, like on Star Trek, when, you know, someone was on the bridge. No? That, that's a little... I don't feel like that's from Star Trek. Is that how that, that piece of says. sound is labeled? Oh, boy. That would be more like intruder alert. Yeah. Intruder alert. Um, I don't want to do, like, something that is, like, you know, we could do, like, a foghorn, but you might take offense to that. <laughs> um... How about uh, how about if we just did like a sound, like uh, throw me a freaking bone here? Yeah, that's real good. Is that, that Austin Powers? That means Mike Myers Anna's, is Austin Powers. Anna's here, uh -huh. everybody. Yeah. Um, What's your vote so far, Stephen? This is so fun listening yeah. to each audio file, huh? Uh, it's definitely not like the sonar stuff. I'm with Anna. That stuff just hurt my ears. Yeah, uh, listening to okay. it. I, I triple dog dare you. Does that work? I don't hate it. This is probably a conversation we should have off air okay. and then bring our top three to the listeners. From now on. Like, there's nothing more annoying than hearing somebody else go through and try to pick a ringtone, and I feel yeah. like this is an equivalent <laughs> of that. The skinny. Okay. How about if we do one that goes, Anna? Mm hmm Yeah. Like, you're new and improved. Uh-huh. No? Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll just say you're here. All right. That'll do Works it. Works for me. That'll do it. Hey, I got to ask you a question. <laughs> somebody asked me this. Um, you grew up... You're, you've talked openly about the 28-unit motel you guys ran on Sandy Boulevard. Sandy and 115th or so? Yeah. The Prestige Inn. The Prestige Inn. What was it? How weird was it growing up in a motel? Uh, really weird. But I didn't know it at the time. Because, you know, when you're a kid, whatever surroundings you have seem normal to you. That's kind of the beauty of being a kid is you're insulated by your innocence, I guess, and lack of awareness of the world and lack of ability to compare to other kids. Um, so I really had no idea that it was highly abnormal to be living in slash running a motel and checking in customers at the age of 10 or 11 and cleaning rooms. Like, I just kind of, I don't know, I, I kind of just thought everybody's families ran businesses like that. I think, uh, did you have friends that would come over? Did you do uh I had a limited set of friends. 
Uh, my parents were always concerned that like people would look badly upon me because of the motel and where it was and it was not a great area of town at the time and so uh, they never really wanted me to tell people that that's what our business was so I had less than a handful of friends who actually knew what my parents did for a living and where I spent most of my time yeah it was weird and so yes, I did have friends come over. Let but me only, ask you this: How old were you when a friend would come over? Uh, the first time I ever had a friend over was probably in middle school. I was probably yeah. twelve or thirteen. What would you guys do? Like, you know what I mean? Like, when people came over to my house, we would play football in the backyard. Yeah. What do you do if you live at a motel? Uh, it's really not. It, I mean, it was not clean, clean some rooms. <laughs> oh. No. Come on, we Melissa, never, come clean some rooms with me. It's a like, blast. You'd think that we would have said, hey, can we go stay in, like, Unit 8? You know, it's not rented for the night. It's vacant. Can we go hang out there and have a slumber party? But, uh, again, not the greatest area of town, cause so my, my mom was not comfortable with that. So we really just hung out in the manager's unit, which is where I lived. It was probably never boring. Like, you, you had all sorts of interesting characters that were <laughs> popping in and out, yes, right? Yes, yeah, that is a favorable way to put it. Characters, yeah. indeed. Yeah, it was like central casting. Yeah, we had our regulars. Like, uh, there was one firefighter dude that would come through town. Um, what was he doing, staying in a motel? I don't know. He would just show up, like, every month or so for a weekend. It was almost like he needed a little staycation. Uh, Getting away from the firehouse. From, from whatever he was. <laughs> yeah. We had, uh, a, we had like, an empty lot next to the motel that my mom, in her business savviness, all 410 of her, um, got covered in gravel and turned it into, like, a trucker parking lot. And Sandy Boulevard, being Highway 30 and a major transportation route, um, had a lot of semi-trucks come through. And so we were known as, like, you know, the trucker motel. So we had a lot of truckers that would park, and if they were just tired of, like, sleeping in their own truck, they would stay there for the night. You guys had HBO. Yeah. Was that out on the out on the marquee? Yeah. It HBO. Was, it was advertised loud and proud on this uh, metal sign that I spray-painted. Up, isn't, up it, high. isn't it interesting how the those motels, I notice it now because you told me stories about what it's like to live and yeah. the things they advertise on those little placards. Yeah, they advertise front. things that actually should already be <laughs> involved in the rental of a yeah. room. You know, like uh, TV, air conditioning, <laughs> cable. Uh, I mean, we advertised kitchenettes. Kitchenette. That was kind of what a, was a kitchen In your eye, what was a kitchenette? What did that qualify as? Was it like a countertop thing that would sit on the countertop it was separate or was it actually like a little no it was actually like a little kitchen it was like a little stove and a little uh yeah yeah. you know we had like long term we had long term like weekly customers they were paying like 128 dollars a week to stay there that's that's phenomenal you know and so what happens when somebody goes to check into the motel and your mom doesn't want them there oh we just jacked the price so what was the price? What was the normal rate? Normal rate was about twenty-eight to thirty-two dollars a okay. night. Maybe okay. the nicest room, you know. So for thirty-two, like, I'm getting a pretty nice room there. Uh, for forty, you got the best room. But yeah, okay. for thirty-two, you're getting an upper tier room. <laughs> and how much if I'm a scumbag and I show up and I'm like, I want your best room? Three hundred and fifty dollars a night. And they would go, 
Adios. You're BSing me, but I get the point. I'm yeah. going to go. I'm not welcome here. Yeah. I like that. I like that kind of pricing. <laughs> I think all restaurants should have the ability to do that. You get sued nowadays, though, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Probably. Don't you think that the, the scumbags would have sued your mom? They would have been like, you know, they discri- she discriminated against me because I'm a scumbag. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I really am a scumbag, but she should take my money. <laughs> you know? Well, she, she required that every customer provide two pieces of uh, ID, ideally picture ID, and sign a 17-point agreement that they would commit no uh, criminal acts on the premises while they stayed. And what was the penalty for that if you violated the 17-point agreement? Uh, The penalty was you got uh, a really angry Taiwanese woman unlocking your room in the middle of the night if she figured out that you were doing anything nefarious, and she would just toss your belongings into the parking lot and scream at you, in loud broken English saying you out you out now so let me <laughs> let me get give me an idea yeah I as as a kid we had a big backyard and I fashioned it into a football field okay okay it was really just a grassy weedy field and I mowed it in such a way and watered the weeds in such a way and then lined it with spray paint awesome. great idea see my dad was at work I took the spray paint out and took it you know made <laughs> sidelines Awesome. Uh, and, you know, did this football field, this mini football field, and played games on it. Yeah. And what did you do? Like, do you have a, did you have a park you could go to? You, had, you, were, playing, <laughs> you were playing softball. That is really funny. Uh, no, you, there was no park on Sandy Boulevard at 115th that I yeah. could go to. But no. so when you went to play a softball game, yeah. you went over to Sacramento yeah. Elementary yeah, School. Yeah, I was and, driven there okay. yeah, to play. And then you play in your softball game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, did people, like, it, it's... Did people know you lived in a motel? No. No, that's the thing. Like nobody knew, really. So most of the people I went to school with through high school did not they know had no idea. that I was living in a motel. Why why is that? Was there a stigma there or your mom Yeah, yeah. she was really worried that it would, you know, people would have like unfavorable impressions. I would have been really impressed. I, if I was your classmate, I would have had so yeah, many questions. I don't know. You didn't spend a lot of time at 115th no. Sandy back in the Yeah, uh, maybe 80s not. And early 90s. Yeah, so. maybe not. Maybe yeah. a little bit rough and tumble. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, good for you, though. You, do you think you developed a sense of business and wanted to become a news anchor because of that experience? Um, I don't know if it was my business sense. I think that I, what I gained from all of that is that I uh, encountered so many people from all different walks of life in different circumstances, had so many conversations with total strangers, um, and interfaced with them at length sometimes, that I just um, don't have a lot of fear. And um, I, also, I also witnessed the power of local TV news, to be honest with you. Like, um, you know, there, was, there were times when uh, the TV news would come out and, like, interview my mom because something had happened and, like, something good would come from that or she got an award sometime and the TV news came out and I was mystified by that whole process. So, I mean, I think it taught me a lot, definitely made me a lot more street smart and street wise and um, perfectly prepared me for a job as an investigative reporter because I would look at situations and, you know, my BS meter is pretty high. Love that. BS meter high. Good thing. Coming up, I have 12 fun stats on the Pac-12 given to me by the Pac-12's own research team. This stuff isn't public. This is the stuff they are researching that I don't think they have a use for anymore. And so, like, the floodgates are open. 
I have a fact, a fun fact about all 12 teams. We're going to go through them and have some fun with those fun facts coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Do you like a fun fact? The Pac-12 has provided some fun facts. And we're going to play a little game on this show. Is it fun or not when it comes to the facts? We will vote two of the three people. We will decide by a committee of three whether or not the facts are fun or not. And uh, I think a lot of times the people who create the facts don't understand what fun is. Uh, Believe me, I've run into some of the researcher people with the Pac-12 conference. Really nice people, not fun people. They are brainiacs. They are nerds. They are, you know, it's Revenge of the Nerds. I, in fact, tried to get one of them on the show today, and he said, I got to clear this with the communications department of the Pac-12, who promptly shut him down. <laughs> they didn't want him out there talking what? about facts because they aren't that fun. So, But I do have my, my, uh, my hands on the fun facts, and I want to go through them. All right, fun or not, that's the question. Steven, you ready to play? Yeah, I'm ready. This is fun. Is this a fun fact? Arizona returns 100% of their passing touchdowns from last season. 39 of their 45 overall touchdowns scored. That's 87%. And 75% of their offensive snaps from 2022. It's the most in the Pac-12 conference. Is that a fun fact or not? Anna. Oh, not for me, dog. You, Stephen? Um, can it's a I know for me, dog? Can I go like partial? Like I like no. I like one of the stats. I don't. I hate. What do you like? I like the final stat of uh, they have seventy five percent of the snaps back, but like one hundred percent of their passing touchdowns. Hated that. It, yeah, their quarterback's coming back. Yeah, I hated that stat. <laughs> so I, I'll vote no. Not fun. Not fun. You said not fun. This it doesn't really mean matter what I vote. We don't know if it's going to get any better. I Stephen. think it actually is fun, but <laughs> okay. I'm in the minority, so it is not a fun fact. Okay. Let's move to Arizona State. It's alphabetical, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. Kenny Dillingham. So fun. Joins his alma mater <laughs> after spending the last five seasons as an offensive coordinator. He was at Memphis and Auburn and Florida State and Oregon. Dillingham is the first Arizona State alumnus named the Sun Devils head coach in the modern era and one of eight alumni leading programs at Arizona State. So eight, there are eight former Arizona State students who are now head coaches at Arizona State. Fun fact or not, Anna? Uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I'm going to say no, and I'm hoping these get more fun. I thought Steve. that was fun. I thought that was a fun yeah. fact. I'm voting okay. fun on I, that one. That I was, agree. That was cool. I, I think it's all kinds of party. It's fun. I need to expand my mind. It just tells me that Arizona State was a fun college. And these coaches all want to come back, and they want to relive their college days. It shows how important college and, like, the alumni base is to your own school. Like, this is why college sports are great. But, like, I would assume that so many of the coaches at schools are alumni. Well, there's eight of them at Arizona State. Well, I would need that fact before I vote if it's not fun. (laughs) Here's a a fun fact about Cal. Okay, okay, okay. Cal has at least one takeaway. 
in 23 of the last 25 football games. Fun or not? Fun. I say no. I vote no because I go with no. What, it's like, not it's fun. such a. It's why why twenty three or twenty five? Yeah. That doesn't. It's it, like yeah. And the other the other two were like really long. Yeah. And Cal's is like has at least one takeaway in twenty three of twenty five yeah. games. Um, fun no. fact: I don't really know what a takeaway is. It's a, that's a fumble or an interception, oh, a turnover. Okay. He okay. took the ball away. But like, yeah. why do you, you choose an something. arbitrary number of twenty five? Like, what's I know. The, you know, like I know. Should have just gone for the last seven seasons. What was their turnover then? Pathetic. Well, I thought that was a lot more fun. I, I right. when I didn't know what takeaway. Was. Here's a fun fact about Colorado, including this season. Six of Colorado's last nine non-conference games come against Power 5 conference opponents. They're playing Power 5 conference opponents 75% of the time in non-conference games. That's unusual. They're not playing a bunch of Portland State. They're not playing a bunch of uh, San Jose State, Boise State, San Diego State games. They are playing TCU. They are playing Nebraska in the non-conference uh, this season, and they have done it in six of the last nine non-conference games. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's interesting. I don't know that I would call that fun. Steven? <laughs> Better idea. Uh, I'm going to go with fun. I think it's a fun <laughs> idea because people people like to see those matchups. That's what everyone wants. It's fun matchups. Yeah. I'm going fun. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's no fun when you have no talent, and Colorado <laughs> didn't have talent last year and the year before, and therefore it was no fun to play a schedule when, you, when you're overmatched, and I think they're overmatched again. We disagree on this. Uh, how about Oregon? Here's a fun fact on the Ducks. Oregon has won 29 straight home games versus non-conference opponents and 30 straight non-conference home games. That is phenomenal. 30 straight non-conference home wins and 29 straight home games against uh, non-conference opponents. Do you know why there's a difference between 29 and 30? Why? It's it said I read it the first time and I went that's the same thing. Yeah. How can it be 29 straight home games versus non-conference opponents and 30 straight non-conference home games? Well, they called the 2011 Pac-12 title game versus UCLA a non-conference home game oh, wow. even though it was the conference championship game. Oh. So it's 30 straight non-conference home games that Oregon has won. That's super fun. Steven? Uh, yeah. That was like double plus fun. I'm going to go fun. It's a fun. It's a, it's a long streak. I'll go fun. Yeah. I think it's fun. I think it's fun because it's really quirky that there, that UCLA counts as a non-conference home game. It was too. It was almost too confusing, though. I almost went yeah. not fun because I was confused. Okay. So I should have. It's probably the way I delivered it. I probably just should have said <laughs> Oregon has 29 straight <laughs> home wins versus non-conference opponents. But get this. They have 30 straight non-conference home wins overall. No? No. No better? I understood the first time. Okay. Oregon State has a fun fact. Here we go. Well, you can't, you can't, like... You already voted uh, fun. I know. You, you guys both said fun. No, Oregon State. You're going moving on to Oregon State. Yeah. You're saying this is... What, what, you, what did you say on Oregon? Oregon was fun. Steven, what did you say? Fun. And it's fun. It yeah. doesn't matter what I vote. Oh, okay. I'm like California in a presidential election. Like, it <laughs> comes down to me that it's already been decided. You know? It's, it's done. Um, all right. So, moving on, I would, say, I would say it's a fun fact. I think it's really quirky. Yeah. All right. Oregon State. Here's a fun fact. This is coming Just from the Pac-12. This is the Pac-12's research team. <laughs> Oregon State enters this season seeking back-to-back 10-win seasons for the first time in program history. Oh, fun. Double not, plus fun. Not fun. That's a lazy stat. 
I actually I feel like think that's lazy. Yeah. I I agree with Steven. <laughs> oh. I I think it just basically says they won 10 games last year. If they do it again, it would be history. Uh-huh. You know. Why yeah. not why not say Oregon State enters the next two seasons sinking back to back to back 10 win seasons for the oh. first time ever. Yeah. It's just it's kind of loaded. <clears throat> it's a little bit drunk. I see. Stanford. Here's a fact. New Stanford coach Troy Taylor is 3 and 0 all time in season openers. He led Sacramento State to a winning season in 2019. They went 9-4, and four, by the way, and they beat Southern Oregon in the season opener last year. Stanford coach Troy Taylor, 3-0 and in season openers. Fun fact or not? Uh, it'd be a little more fun if it was more than three. Yeah. yeah no, no fun. No fun for me. You know? Like, so what I do you need, say? Need, Are you both no, saying no fun? fun? I'm going to say fun because I learned something about Troy Taylor, and I, I know very little about him. <laughs> Okay. But it, it literally was Sacramento State three wins, and they played Southern Oregon. I mean, I know. that's not that's And not you know what the score of last year's game was against Southern Oregon? 79-0. Se- to 77-19. Wow. That's, that's those, fun. Those kids I in mean, Ashland. That's I, fun. I played against Southern Oregon. It can't be that fun. They had a lot of fun, Sac State did, Yeah. playing that game. <laughs> 77-19. That was fun for them. Yeah. yeah. UCLA. Here's a fun fact. Last season... The Bruins had their best scoring offense since 1998 and set a new program record for total yards per game, 503.6 total yards per game. Fun or not? Um, no, not fun for me. No? I'm way more interested in the why yeah. behind it, but go on, The Steve. why of it is Dorian Thompson-Robinson. He had a fifth-year, sixth-year senior quarterback, and yeah. now he doesn't. I actually thought it was a little fun because, uh, you know, Chip Kelly, he actually turned around. Like, we, we're we kind of hard on Chip Kelly, I feel like, yeah. at UCLA, but he's putting up historic numbers there. Mm. He averaged 39.2 points per game last year, um, best scoring offense since 1998. It reminds me that 1998 was a while ago. Like, I don't think of that as that long ago, and then I go, that was 25 years ago. Had to have been uh, uh, Cade McNown, right? Probably right in there. So wait, right did you vote fun, John? I'm going to say it's a fun fact. I think uh, 500 yards per game is a fun fact. I think the more fun fact is that the filet mignons that he's serving the players must be working. Grass-fed. Mm, that is uh, fun. That's actually those, fun. Those UCLA players are grass-fed. Uh, USC, here's a fun fact. Lincoln Riley is 17-0 and in regular season non-conference games after the win against San Jose State last year. He is 17-0 and regular season non-conference games. He does not lose non-conference games in the regular season. Fun fact or no? I mean, it's USC. He, he should be doing that, right? It ha- I think it has a lot to do with who they're playing. He was at yeah. o- Oklahoma before. Yeah. He's at USC now. These are programs that don't schedule tough teams. He's got Nevada this week, and then his other non-conference game is Notre Dame oh. that comes in week seven. So well, look out. Nice. That streak could be in jeopardy. So I'm going to say it's a fun fact. That's fun. Uh, because uh, For that fact yeah. alone, it's fun. It's I think John's wrinkle. fact was more fun. I, yeah. I, don't, I didn't like the Lincoln Riley. I felt like that was a little lazy, too. Like, oh, mm. Lincoln Riley's a good coach. Like, that's that's the fact. They don't play anybody. Yeah, yeah. They, don't, they didn't play anybody at Oklahoma, and he's a good coach. I, I already knew that. Here's a fun fact about Utah. Utah offense last year averaged 38.6 points per game. It was the sing- best single-season scoring average ever under Kyle Whittingham. Is that a fun fact? Uh, sure. Coached a long time. Fun. Fun. 
I funny. sound really sure. Of yeah, you you're in you're in Salt Lake City. Okay, yeah. there's not a lot of alcohol flowing. There's points flowing. That's fun. Utah yeah, Utah's go. known for defense too. So like to know that that's the you know the best offense they've ever had. I like it. I'll say fun. Washington Huskies scored eighteen point two more points last year versus the year before. It was the largest year-over-year improvement in FBS from 2021 to 2022, and it was also the largest scoring improvement by a Pac-12 team ever. Fun fact? That just is such a stretch for me. I mean, that's somebody, like the person who thinks that is fun is a statistician. I met that guy. And I am... (laughs) I am not that. His name's person. Greg, and he hangs I mean, out in the casino counting cards. Good for, good for the Huskies, but that's like one of those um, things they put on a sheet and hand it to the play-by-play yeah. announcer. Yeah, right. To fill time during an extended so timeout. It's a no for you, dog. It, yeah. I'm gonna say it. It it really isn't fun either because I agree with you. It says that Jimmy Lake was really bad. <laughs> I like this fun. That's All right. Fun. Washington State, finally. Since Jake Dickert joined Washington State as the D coordinator in 2022, the Washington State Cougars are second in the Pac-12 in total takeaways. Those are interceptions and fumbles, Anna. Thank you. That is second. Washington State is second since 2022 in total takeaways. Fun fact or no? Well, if I said Cal was fun, I just got to be consistent now. (laughs) That's real fun. Uh, they're second. They can't even get a first-place stat for Washington State. I'm going to go with not fun. <laughs> that's that's cold. I'm going to say it is fun because I didn't I didn't think they would be second. You know, but it says I think it says a lot about Mike Leach too because you look back and you say second since 2020. That's big. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I like the way we did that. Is it fun? Is it not fun with those facts in the last segment? We'll keep that. We'll keep that. You know? We'll keep that in the uh, in the in the offense. Is it fun? Is it cake? Is it cake? There you go. <laughs> do you guys watch that show, Stephen, in your family? Yeah, we do. The kids, uh, the kids of the wife, love that show. Why do people love that? I don't know. Well, I'm kind I'm of that. obsessed with it too. It's, it's kind fascinating of, how they yeah. can make it look like a, the actual object. It's impressive. But it, I, I gotta wonder what it tastes like when they're so good with the art, you know? Yeah, but it tastes good according to no, the judges on there. I think it has a lot to do with. <laughs> The fact that it is, uh, they're using a lot of wax. Fondant. Is that what that is? Fondant. Okay. Um, there was a Beaverton girl on there. She got eliminated in the first round, though. You need to apply to be a judge just so you can come back and report back if nice. it's good cake or not. Yeah. Is it cake? What does it taste like? Well, remember when there's a tiebreaker that comes down to the taste. Oh, I know that. The ta- tie goes to the taste. Yeah. I know way nice. too much about this show. Very nice. I, know, I just know that the guy from Wipeout ended up... As the host, didn't he? Isn't he the same guy? No. Or no, is it is it Saturday Night Live? He's SNL. Kind of a Saturday Night Live B actor. Yeah. He's not like the guy. Yeah. Hey, he's uh, found his niche, though. Is it? I bet he's getting paid well. We still don't know his name, but we know his show. Mikey Day. That guy. He's getting paid. 
Uh, we're going to do the five at five. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up about five twenty-four. Right about five twenty-four. See how accurate I am on that front. Anna, let's do it. The five biggest stories. The five at five. The number one story is Anna sees it. Coach Prime voicing his displeasure with the NCAA. Offensive lineman Tyler Brown was denied immediate eligibility for the upcoming season. He transferred from Louisiana to Jackson State last season and has subsequently transferred to Colorado when Sanders became the program's head coach. He's seeking a waiver, citing mental health issues to grant him immediate eligibility to play in the upcoming season, but it was denied by the NCAA. Sanders says it doesn't make sense. Some things just don't make sense. You say you really care about mental health, but when you have someone really dealing with mental health, there's a problem. Now, interestingly, the player himself posted a video to YouTube last week, and he talks about his struggles with mental health at length. He breaks down. He gets very vulnerable and talks about his mother who is a single mother and had to support him through his efforts at Jackson State and makes a pretty convincing case. Uh, You'll recall that there's a new rule adopted just earlier this year. Players who are transferring schools for a second time will only be granted immediate eligibility if there's a physical or mental health issue that has led to them transferring. I, two things. There's two There's two tentacles to this for me. A, I don't think the NCAA should be in the business of telling players who legitimately say, hey, I have a mental health issue that they shouldn't be allowed to transfer. B, though, this kind of dovetails with Coach Prime earlier kind of, you know, making the comment about are they going to be able to protect number two? His son's the quarterback. This is an offensive lineman that he's trying to get eligible Steven, does this does do these two things walk hand in hand? They may, but you know, mental health is one of those touchy subjects, John. Like I, I wanna give the kid the benefit of the doubt and believe that it is all in the up and up and they're not lying about it, but skeptical Steven would say, Yeah, I mean maybe Coach Prime does just want him to make he sure he's guys. Okay. Yeah. He needs some guys. But I, I always you know, the NCAA it's just such a weird entity. It's like this big battleship got all these problems and then it picks like these little things that it just sort of cracks down on selectively and i feel like this is one of those it's really problematic because and you know i'm as cynical as i'll get out right like (laughs) my news reporter background initially says to me okay this is crap but then you watch the video and the kid gets very real and it's hard to deny a young man who's saying look man this is real i have struggled Here's what I've struggled with. My mom's paying for my expensive psychiatric medication to keep me well, and I I need this transfer to help me. Yeah. That's so. I agree with you. It's a weird place for the NCAA to be in. Like yeah. How? Where? What it, are their deciding factors there? One of the things I pride myself on. I think you and I talk about this a lot. Is when you're parenting, you have to be consistent, and your rules need to make sense. The NCAA is a bad parent. There, it's inconsistent with rules, inconsistent with enforcement. You know, kid pleading his case. They say a physical or mental issue is, you know, a valid thing. He says, hey, I, I've got a mental issue here. 
that I could benefit from transferring for, and the NCAA goes, nah, not you. It's They're bad parents. It's really problematic. Number two, what do you got? Uh, NBA referee Eric Lewis retires. This is the guy that the league announced uh, it was investigating for wrongfully using social media. Um, it came to light that there may have been a burner account on Twitter that he was using to make comments regarding the league's officiating, and that is not allowed in the NBA. So as they were looking into this matter, they pulled him from his role as a ref in the most recent NBA Finals, and Adam Silver at the time said he didn't think it would be appropriate for him to work. He has since retired. Uh, the NBA says it's closed the investigation. Still not clear yet if the account did, in fact, belong to him. Eric Lewis retiring. He took the retirement. They ended the case. And uh, he did this before the uh, burner drama could be resolved. He's getting out of Dodge. And is he a good official or not? Uh, I don't think any of the NBA officials are really that great. I wouldn't say any was good. But I will say, I think in the playoffs, the Celtics were like 32-2 and two when he refed. I got Eric Lewis calling a terrible no-call in the Celtics. Do you remember the, the game when Pat Beverly brought a camera onto the court and Eric Lewis teed him up? James comes up top, gets it. James on the drive, gets in the paint, layup, missed it. Lakers furious, they thought he was fouled. LeBron James so upset. Wow. Clear foul on Tatum. And as the teams went to the benches and before overtime started, Patrick Beverly comes out on the floor to Eric Lewis with a camera. I mean, just ridiculous. And Eric Lewis rightfully tees him up. Tees him up. There goes Eric Lewis. Terse statement from the NBA. He's retiring effective immediately in light of his decision. The investigation has been closed. <laughs> yeah. We're out. Got to read between the lines there, huh? There you go. He won't be officiating. I wonder if he'll go. He'll pop back up on Twitter. Number three, go. Uh, Manny Pacquiao exploring options for the 2024 Summer Olympics. Eight-time world champion in boxing, hero of the Philippines, seeing if he can qualify and represent his home country in the 2024 Olympics in. Paris. Doesn't it seem like you would have had to kind of been preparing by now? Maybe not for him. He's just always been straight. He's, I don't know. He's I, 44. Look, he's one of these people. He's a great boxer. 44. He had his time. He's got career in politics. He's got a music career. He does a little bit of everything, Pacquiao. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's hanging on. It, it it's He's not the first. He's not the last in that sport. That will hang on too long. Mm. He's hanging on, hoping for a little more glory. Go be Manny Pacquiao. You don't need to be boxing. But maybe he doesn't know how to be Manny Pacquiao without boxing. That's what I'm thinking. What else you got? Number four. Remember his trainer was Freddie Roach? That was a great documentary. I had Freddie Roach on this show. You did? Yeah, he was great. That's interesting. Um, okay. The mother of Spain's, uh, you know, soccer guy... Kisser, okay. the unwanted kisser. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he's still, I guess, 
is still fighting to save his job. He's technically not fired Wait, yet. Wait, didn't she go on hunger strike? Yes, and so this is the problem. She's been refusing to eat still a third straight day now, and she's now in the hospital. Um, she was feeling tired and stressed out. I didn't know this part. She locked herself in a nearby church days ago as a way to protest what she believed was the unfair treatment of her son. A lot this of is, drama. This is the head of Spain in soccer who was seen at the Women's World Cup uh, kissing the soccer star on Spain's team on the lips, and she says, no, it was not consensual. I'm going to say something that might be unpopular here. Okay. You think that they are related? <laughs> A little bit dramatic. It was. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the guy kissed, forcefully kissed a woman soccer player in front of the world grabbed both sides of her head like you know he it was not a good look grabbed his crotch threw somebody else up on his shoulder and he's being appropriately criticized for it and his mom's saying that her response to this is she's going to go on hunger strike and lock herself in a church take your son with you does the publicity help him? Does it muddy the waters? Well, at least his mom believes in him. What, what are they going to go? Everyone's going to go, okay, okay, no, we're not going to suspend him. I you mean, know? the team's vowing not to play if he remains the president. He's done, and she needs to let go before something really bad happens here. Well, she's she should not be holding her breath or not refusing to eat. Number five. Okay, i got to talk about this one because this kind of stuff drives me crazy. Youth soccer coach in Virginia beaten by an out-of-control parent who attacked him with a metal water bottle. It caused serious damage, including a broken eye socket. This happened over the weekend uh, west of D.C. This coach, Vince Villanueva, he wasn't even the main coach. He was just filling in for his friend. He tried to make a substitution to the game. Father went over to talk to the son, and then when he went to go get the son and put him in the game, he said, are you okay? No, he's not. Basically, everything went crazy. The dad went after the coach with a metal water bottle, hitting him several times. Uh, fractured orbital, had to go to the hospital. Yeah, that's bad. Fled from the scene. Uh, but like, like that was the worst part, that he fled. <laughs> I love how you like punctuate that. <laughs> Never mind go? that he fractured the orbital. He, Nettie he fled. But like... <laughs> I bring it up because like, it's ridiculous. Where are you going to go? How did he flee? Did you he have about, fly? You have like a hundred witnesses to this. Right? Hang glider? How did he get out of there? <laughs> you know? The coach says, and everyone needs to hear this, allow them to do their job. Just make it a fun environment. Kids have enough stress in life with everything else in the world. Yeah. Allow them to have that moment, some place to escape from it. Totally. It's youth soccer. I understand that parents lose their minds. We've seen it. We've seen it firsthand. Parent youth sports is a dangerous place to uh, live these days. Uh, parents lose their minds. They lose pers lose perspective. They feel like coaches are out to get their kid or singling out their kid. When the truth is probably, if you could step back as a parent, you're going to see like, yeah, there are some people who are coaching in youth sports who probably shouldn't be in there that are making promises and making decisions and feeling. You know, like, you know, they're they're uh, more powerful than they really are. But the truth is, like, most of the problems in youth sports originate with, with parents. They do. They originate with parents at games, at practices, 
trying to navigate the system, trying to put their kid in position to be the star. It's um, it's way worse than the NBA. Way worse. And I just don't understand the concept of it coming to blows. I mean, there was a few months ago where an official was attacked by a dad at a youth basketball game in Indiana, and yeah. that got ugly. Like, people, I just, I don't, I don't understand losing your mind like this. I think they get mad. They get mad, and in defense of your child, you start to go, it's that person who's making my child miserable, and as a parent, you, you vilify that person. And I'm not saying it's right, but I'm, I think that's the thinking, Anna. I think that's, you know. Get a grip. Yeah. And I, look, youth sports is a great place. I'm going to say this again. Youth sports is a great place for your kid to fail. <laughs> It is. I know. It's a safe place to fail if it's done right. If if youth sports is operating correctly, your kid can go in on a team, have some struggles, encounter a bad boss, encounter a bad coworker for the first time with low stakes and understand how to navigate and learn how to navigate that situation. That's if you allow your kid to fail. If you're a parent and you're intervening and breaking the orbital bone of the coach, you're not really sending that message, and you're not ena- enabling your kid or giving your kid the opportunity to work through it. Well, and I feel like fail is such a uh, loaded word. Like, when I think of failure, I think of, oh, I don't know, taking out a second mortgage on your house for a small business venture and then losing it all. Yeah. But, like, I think I think what we're talking about really is to make mistakes. No, but I, I think we have to remove the stigma of it. I have failed all kinds of times. Different jobs. When I go to write pieces on a daily basis, you know, I'll run into dead ends. Uh, in sports, I failed. In, you know, I, I bumped my head against the ceiling and the wall and hit my head on the kitchen cabinet, so to speak, metaphorically, so many times. And, but those aren't failures. But, yeah, they those are. are mistakes. I no, but I think they are failures. But I think when we, when sometimes we think of failure, we think of catastrophic event. The Titanic going down was a failure. Yeah. But I also think it's a failure if you take the wrong turn, you end up in traffic. And the next time you go, because you're late, you're late to work. The next time you go, you go, you know what, last time I went that way, I'm going to try a different way. It's you're, you're navigating and dealing with that individual small failures, your own limitations on a daily basis. I think we have to remove the stigma of it. I said that. I was at a CYO banquet, and I got up in front of the room, and all those CYO people there, and I said, this is a great place for kids to fail. And there's a gasp, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a safe place to fail. Mm-hmm. We, kids need safe places to fail. They need to be able to play a sport and strike out, make a mistake, or have a bad coach and have it not be the end of the world and have their parent not rescue them from it. That's where we get in trouble. We start rescuing kids. And it's, I'm not talking about taking them out of an unsafe situation. Yeah, the coach yeah. is running you. It's 114 degrees. Sure. Got kids passing out. You should not be dealing. That's not a person who knows what they're doing. But I'm just saying if, if the dynamic on the team is such that your kid's not playing and they're dealing with that kind of adversity and trying to navigate it, let them, let them struggle. And let it's them a hard, work it it's out. It's a hard thing to do as a parent, especially if you're an involved parent, especially if you're an over-involved parent, because I, mean, I think you and I have that discussion all the time. It's like, okay, no, we've got to let them try to do this, and they might fall flat on their face, but yeah. we have to let them try because the alternative is they turn 18 or 21, we send them out into the world, and their first real failure is right. as an adult, and they're not under your roof. Then you've really got a problem. That's, that's the message. Let them fail safely in youth sports where they can learn resilience, where they can learn how to deal with adversity, 
because you're right. You don't want the first time they're dealing with failure to be in the real world with high stakes. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, went 2-10 and in his first year. He won 10 games last year. I'll ask him about that, that struggle that he had in year one, and is he benefiting from it now? He's next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up, uh, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be with us. A safe place to fail. I go back and, look, I played college baseball, but I, uh, I go back and I remember being in Little League, and I remember I can remember uh, a couple of experiences when I talk about having a safe place to fail. I remember as a nine-year-old getting drafted and being put on a quote-unquote Little League major baseball team. My dad played professional baseball. He was in AAA with the Mets in 1969. Everybody in our town knew that my dad was a professional baseball player. And of course, as a nine-year-old, some some team drafted me and put me with the 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. It looked like Nolan Ryan was on the mound. I couldn't even see the ball. It was an exercise in futility. But it was a good exercise for me to see that and see the level of play and struggle. And it was a safe place to fail. That's what I'm talking about with sports. I think sometimes youth sports, parents get involved. We want to, we want to jimmy-rig the outcome for our kids. And I understand you want your kid to be successful, but don't rescue your kid and take the ability for them to be resilient and the ability that for them to overcome an obstacle away from them, for crying out loud. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. He's got kids who play baseball. Joining us now. Hey, on the youth sports front, can we, can we dabble there for a minute before we get into the football? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about your youth sports experiences. Were they all glory? Did you have some struggles? What did you get out of sports besides trophies? Yeah, well, yeah, they were a, a bunch of fun. Um, not ever, didn't win every game. I can still remember giving up a couple home runs when I'm pitching in little league to my buddies, who then you saw the next day at school, and they wanted to tell you about it. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was great for me playing baseball and basketball, and and yeah, having some ups and downs and teamwork and and all of that. When I talk about safe place to fail, as a parent, you know you. You may watch your kid struggle in a youth sport. I guess my argument is I think kids can get something out of, you know, they can grow in confidence and they can, you know, you don't want them as an adult or even a college kid encountering adversity for the first time without a parent there to rescue them. Yeah, I'd I, I agree with you there. There's no question that uh, adversity and maybe a big stage and a big moment in Little League, whether it's, it works out or not, um, overcome it. And bouncing back, I think that builds self-esteem uh, in all of us when we got challenges and sometimes fail, but you get back up and once you improve and get it figured out the next time, that, that builds your self-esteem. You got the job at Oregon State and you walked in and that first season was a bit of a struggle. I remember you getting a late season win at Colorado, but you know what else did you get out of 2-10? and ten? Yeah, uh, you know, it was what we signed up for. Had a lot of work to do, and and you learned a bunch. I think, I think our approach year one was continue to dive into the player, knowing that we wanted to be able to develop some guys over a long haul. You know, and the the light at the end of the tunnel, it wasn't very close that first year. But I do look back, 
and the consistency of our approach, I think that's paid dividends in the, the years moving forward. Was it hard when you weren't getting a result? Because, or maybe it was the Colorado game late in the year where you where you got one and you were able to hold it up to the guys and go, look, this is what why you, you know you got the result. Like, is it difficult when you're not getting wins to continue to preach that message? Oh yeah, man, it's hard to keep a belief in all of that when you're not getting in the win column, and um, that's tough stuff. And that's you know part of coaching. Uh, that's part of you know playing this playing the game. You're not always going to win. You got to stick to a process that you believe in and be consistent with it, and always feel like uh, the lights at the end of the, end of the tunnel. Uh, that was a you know it was a, a fun win to have that first year. I definitely remember it over there go to overtime yeah and i want to say that locker room was full of guys that never won on the road in their whole career so it was like their wow. first win on the road um so yeah it was a great day all right you guys uh are going on the road it's always tough to win on the road you're playing a team that's already played a game um what do you see on film when you look at san jose state yep let's see uh a sound scheme on the all three phases, but you know, I was going to say offense and defense. The quarterback stands out. I mean, this guy, he can move. He's accurate. He's played a lot of football. You can just see his experience with his decision-making. Uh, he's a threat. I mean, this guy's thrown over 70 touchdowns in his career, um, so that stands out. And, and they didn't back down to anything. They're going toe-to-toe into halftime, one-score game, and really just a few plays kind of broke the thing open. Obviously, they kickoff return for a touchdown, but as he goes for it on a fourth down, close to midfield, and they convert it. SC made the play, but, you know, things are a little different if they don't. Um, so this is going to be a challenge, like you're saying. First game, it's on the road, um, playing against a team that's got a bunch of pride. They've been winning games for multiple years now, and they're going to bowl games. So, yeah, it's a, a serious challenge that got our attention. Anthony Gold was on the show earlier. He talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that there is a little chip on the shoulder this season. Do you? How do you keep that from being too heavy, meaning you won't want it to be a distraction, but you want it to be motivation. Yeah, we we, we want to play with an edge, and there's no question that, um, you know, it, it, these games mean something. Uh, they put a ton of work into them, um, and so you know, we're going to respect all but fear not as we approach each week uh, and going into the thing. And Anthony Gould, I think, represents the two at T. You talk about a chip on his shoulder, one of my favorite players on this team. Uh, what the player he's turned into be huge plays for us last year and counting on a bunch of them this year. DJ is your starting quarterback. Uh, I know you talked in the news conference kind of about what set him apart. Is it decision-making? Is it, uh, you know, is it his experience? What did, what did you see? Well, you know, he kind of separated in a couple scrimmages. I mean, we did. We put the ball down and let these guys operate and go play, and he moved, moved the offense and scored points. He was good with his decisions. Um, in those, and that kind of separated. Uh, just looking at the body of work of fall camp, there's no question he has experience in big stages and big stadiums, and, and uh, that that's helped him. Uh, I think his approach with his teammates has been been awesome, and there's a real belief that you know him pulling the trigger for us, we can do some some cool things. He's not coming into a situation where he has to throw for 350 yards and four touchdowns every game, and I think in a lot of ways it's a great situation for him, but. You, how do you kind of balance, um, you know, keeping the identity of the team, adding him into the fold? You know, I, I, I still want to say you're going to run the football or you're going to challenge the other team to stop you. Yeah, I mean, we want to have some balance. We want to make the game physical. Uh, at the same time, if we feel like we can get some things going in the pass game, we're not going to hesitate to call multiple passes and put the ball in his hands and 
and let him go because we do got some guys on the outside that can make some plays. Uh, but I just think in general, I want to be good at both throwing it and running it. And then uh, you go enter into a game and see what's working and be able to change it up. Um, and and I, I do think we got to be able to take a step. I just look at over the overall the whole season, the type of offenses, quarterbacks we're going to see in this league this year. We got to be able to score a little bit. But, you know, it's interesting because I have found like I've seen you on the sideline right before the games, and if there's a Dodgers Giants series going on, you're you know you you'll you're sort of uh, staying a little loose. You know, you're. You're you're not one of these coaches who's like running around the field, you know, intense and you know right before kickoff. Is that is is that because you feel like you've done the work to that point and you don't benefit from being tight on game day and you want to kind of set, you know, give me an idea like it feels like the preparation, you're in the meat of the preparation right now, but by Sunday right before kickoff it's more just, hey, it's in the hands of the guys. Let's let's see how they react, and let's see what positions we can put them in. Yeah, I mean, you get in right before the game. You put a lot of work in, and you got to feel good about the approach you took leading up to that point. And so I'm trying to just kind of be consistent to to who I am. I think these guys are going to be excited to play. I don't. They're not going to need me to all of a sudden jump with some, a ton of excitement. They put a lot of work into this thing. Um, it showed. Level-headed. Obviously, I'm competitive as all get-out, and my mind's stirring, but it helps me once in a while. I have a little bit of distraction or side conversation before. Yeah, that gets you a little bit relaxed, like not, you know, because you, you know you've got big decisions coming up. Yeah, I try to, you know. I don't know if I'm just trying to mess with my own head a little bit. But, yeah, right before the game, the band's going, the crowd's there. It's exciting, man. This is awesome stuff. Um, but not trying to get too ramped up because there are some critical decisions that got to be made during this game. It's not like you can press pause on the TV or something to make them. I mean, that play clock's going and down-to-distance changes and timeouts you have and the flow of the game and how we're doing offense, defense, special teams, all that's going through your head the whole time during the game. Jonathan Smith is with us, Oregon State football coach. All right, um, look, I I know that you, you, you've got a good problem in that you've got a bunch of guys who went off and got into NFL camps, and it's been fun to see some of these guys like Jack Coletto and Jaden Grant, you know, make a run at trying to make teams and get on practice squads. But well, how do you replace that leadership on defense? And and where do you feel like you're at right now when it comes to a leadership on the defensive side of the ball standpoint? Yeah, I think it's gonna be those guys are tough to exactly replace. I mean, Jaden Grant, uh, the legacy he left at this place, his story from year one to more or less at year seven. Um, he did. He had some great leadership and motivation and maturity about it, competitiveness. Um, I like where we're headed defensively, the leadership in, because we've got some guys that have played. I actually think the game atmosphere now will allow them to continue building on the leadership You know, in between series when things don't go exactly right and how they respond and help these younger guys continue to come along. Katon and Easton Mascarenas and James Rawls and Isaac Hodgins, these guys have played a lot of football. So I'd feel feel good the direction our leadership's going all right 10 wins last year uh the program's not won 10 wins it's two years in a row you could probably tell the guys stories after the fiesta bowl cover of sports illustrated i mean the, the stories are out there how do you convince your team that last year didn't matter even though down deep it did yeah you know, i mean you remind them last year yeah winning 10 games is pretty cool but 
recognizing how hard that was and how much resilience you had to have and adversity we had during the season, during games. And so this stuff's not easy to win, man. And we stick into a process of approach week in and week out. Uh, we're going to let it hang out on, on Sunday, and we're going to learn a ton after the game. And whether we win by three touchdowns or lose by three touchdowns, we're back to this approach. We've got to learn. We won't be playing our best ball at the end of the season. So if we've got a great approach week in and week out, we'll continue to improve. And that'll give us a chance to do something special in November. All right. I'm going to Salt Lake City and going to catch the Florida-Utah game tomorrow night. And then I'm headed to yeah. the Bay Area for your game because I think it's I think those two games are the biggest games in the conference. Do you, will you, do you watch the other games? I guess you watch the San Jose State-USC game. But will you tune into Florida-Utah just to kind of get your mind in football mode? Yeah, uh, and you enjoy it. I'll be anxious to, to see those guys play. We catch up with them here in a month or so. And so, yeah, we, I got time around schedule to, to check it out. You know, we get to get all the tape of it, too. So we'll be watching watching that as we get into Utah week. But, yeah, rooting for those guys to, to play well. That place will be rocking. And then you're right. I think coming over to this game, this game is going to be something. I mean, San Jose State, what they've done over the last couple of years, I think that crowd will be a big one for what they normally get. Counting on Beaver Nation showing up down there in the Bay, Bay Area as well. It'll be good to see you. Yeah, I know, I know it's uh, that coaching staff. You're familiar with those guys. They're good coaches. They're a good team. Any chance of it being a trap game? Can you? Is there such a thing as a trap game in week one? I don't think so. I mean, just in general. I mean, each week, these guys, all of us know how competitive these games are. And, you know, people win that maybe – don't not many expect to happen, but this is college football. You got to bring your A game each week, and and that's what we're going to try to do. All right, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate you jumping on with us. Uh, good luck to you. I'll see you Sunday at the stadium. Nice day game. You all right with the day game? No, no question. I am. wake up, quick walk through, and get to the stadium. It's awesome. All right, I'll see you there. Good luck to you. Okay, thanks, John. Travel safe. All right. All right, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. I'll tell you a, a takeaway I have in listening to Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning both this week and talking to coaches over the years about this time. I don't think they're nervous. I think they're all business at this time. I can feel – I felt it in Dan Lanning on Friday. Like, he – as he was giving answers, he was talking. It was a good interview. It was fine. I think he's a, I think he's a little tight not because like he's nervous about Portland State, not because it, it's just that time of year where there's some pressure coming, your team's going to be on the field, and I think head coaches are focused on, you know, the performance of the team, how do they look, the procedural stuff, and you know, there's a lot to do before they kick off a game, and I think on Friday, I heard it in Dan Lanning. He, he wasn't as he wasn't as loose even talking about Pacino and the Godfather, whatever we were talking about that had nothing to do with football. And Jonathan Smith just a little tight. Steven, are you getting what I'm putting down here? Like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just think the coaches in general on about Wednesday of week one are going, hey, we have a game this week. They're in game mode. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it's not nervousness. It's it's kind of like an excitement, but at the same time, it's like, has all this work we've put in, is it going to work? Right? Like, it's not. they're not nervous about the actual game. They're just nervous about, like, I just did all this work for this whole season, recruiting everything, and it comes down to you know one couple hours on Saturday or on Sunday. Like I think I, I'm with you. It's not nervousness. It's more, it's excitement. But I mean, I don't know. Just not. I don't. It's hard to explain. You're right. Like it's they were they were just were not as uh, personable as they usually were. weren't as excited. I would say. And I I think there it's just there's a tightness. 
there's a little tightness to the to the act and to the interview that is evident to me. And I'm not saying it's bad. Don't like at me and be like, "Who said Jonathan Smith was tight?" No, I just think it, it's more like it's they're in business mode at this point. It's almost like the since the expectations are so high, you know, like it, it's there's some expectations to him this season. Where you know, last season. Dan Lane's first season, Jonathan Smith, you know, wasn't expected to win 10 games. Like, this year, both teams are expected to be really good. So, I think you're right. I think it's a little bit of tightness and the fact that they are supposed to be good. Like, has this work? Has all the work in the offseason worked out? We'll find out. I I, uh, I did a podcast with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group earlier today, and we handicapped and talked in depth about the Oregon game against Portland State and what we're looking for and the Oregon State game. We talked about all the games. But I'm gonna, I pulled the audio from those two snippets. I'm going to play it in the next segment. So you can hear Wilner and I debate whether it, there's such a thing as a trap game in week one. I don't think there can be. I don't think you can go on the road against a team you just saw play San Jose State, played against USC, played them pretty tough in the first half. I don't think you can go on the road and walk into that environment and go, oh, we're looking past it. Not when you have UC Davis and San Diego State and Washington State in your next three games. Like, you know, if you had Oregon in your next game or you had USC in your next game, maybe you could say it's a trap game. I don't think there's such a thing for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I do think that game's going to be closer than expected because they're going on the road and because they're playing a team that's got some guys. The quarterback's good. He's got receivers. They'll put up some points, I think. But I think Oregon State's going to win that game. I don't know if they're going to cover the 17, 17 and a half, but I'm picking them to win the game. But you'll hear Wilner and I debate it next. Also, we talk about what we want to see in the Portland State-Oregon game. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide right here on the BFT Radio Network. So much more ahead. we got a great week of radio. Leave it locked in right here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Wilner and I host a podcast. We co-host it. Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. You can grab that podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get a podcast, you can find Konzano and Wilner. Uh, on today's episode, if you want to grab it, we handicapped the Pac-12 Week 1 games. We went wire to wire. And I want to just pull out a couple of them. I want to pull out our conversation about Oregon and Portland State, uh, that, uh, that game taking place on Saturday at Autzen Stadium, and then pull out, the conversation we had about Oregon State and San Jose State, the game taking place on Sunday. We mostly see the Oregon game the same way. You know, Bruce Barnum came on yesterday's show. You heard him here. He talked about, you know, the fact that his he believes his team is really fast, but he doesn't think necessarily that it will show in this game against Oregon because they are blistering fast. Um, but we have a conversation about that, and uh, you can hear it here. Uh, as we pivot to the noon game on the Pac-12 Networks, Portland State going to Oregon. Dan Lanning, one of the fastest teams in uh, major college football, playing against a Portland State team that is billing itself as the fastest team in their division. And so in the lower division of Division One football, Portland State saying, hey, we're the fastest team in our division. They're the fastest team in their division. Uh, Oregon's speed, I think, is too much and... Uh, you know, I think they run away with this one comfortably. I also talk with Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach. 
he told me, you know, his focus is on winning games. They have Wyoming next week. I think down deep, Portland State thinks it has a shot at Wyoming. And I won't be surprised in the fourth quarter of this game if Oregon's up by three scores, if Barnum pulls his starters, and it really gets away from Portland State. So keep an eye on that if you're somebody uh, focused on that game. Yeah, I blow out game over by, what, 1 o'clock, one fifteen. I would think. Uh, I am curious to see Oregon's offense with Will Stein, uh, the new play caller, but this is not going to be a very good uh, indication, right? Because they're going to keep things under wraps and only only do the bare minimum here to get get through and get into week two. I do share John Wilner's intrigue as, as it pertains to seeing Will Stein, seeing Bo Nix, seeing some of the Oregon players. I'll be curious to see how physically dominant they look, how fast they look. I'll be looking at the defense quite a bit, the receivers with Bo Nix. How does that all look? Offensively, I agree. We're not going to see a ton of creativity. I don't think they're going to empty the playbook in a game against Portland State. They've got Texas Tech. Oregon has Texas Tech in Week 2 in Lubbock, Texas. I'll be on the scene for that one uh, as well. But uh, we uh, we also talked about Oregon State and San Jose State, and it was a very different conversation. We did not see that game the same way. Wilner is calling it a trap, and he will not be surprised if San Jose State wins it. I think it's a potential trap, but I think Oregon State knows the stakes. Listen to our conversation about that one as I set up the Oregon State Week 1 game. Oregon State, San Jose State, Sunday game, CBS, 1230 in San Jose. I'll be at this game as well as the Thursday night Utah-Florida game. This will be my second game of the week. I'm excited to see this game. And San Jose State uh, coming off a respectable loss to USC. The spread is 17.5 with a total of 54.5. And And I think that if there's going to be an upset, a big upset, I got this one circled. I think the Beavers are going to be really pushed, right? This is a this is a great example of a team playing not only its first game of the season, but first game with a new quarterback. And San Jose State's line and wait, and they they have gotten themselves, uh, you know, they sharpened their, their execution by being able to play USC last week. Uh, and San Jose State's not a bad team, and they can move the ball. So I think there's a chance that this is an outright upset. I certainly like San Jose State to cover uh, but I think they can win the game, and, and Oregon State is going to have to really uh, execute efficiently for a, a season opener if they're going to get out of there with a victory, because I think San Jose yeah. State this is a perfect setup for an upset. I think it's a dangerous game, and, and I, but I think Oregon State comes in to this season with uh, another great offensive line, a quarterback in DJ Uyunglele who will get his first start. He's big in, been in big environments uh, at Clemson, and, and I think – that matters in this kind of game. But San Jose State, you know, they've got some guys, and they've got a great coaching staff, and I think it presents a dangerous matchup. I I agree with you that San Jose State and the points is the play. But the Beavers, they're playing with a chip on their shoulder, Wilner, and if you're you're telling me that a program that got told that they're left behind is going to be a no-show in Week 1, I would be really surprised by that. So I think that Oregon State wins a very tough physical game. I think they make it tough and physical, but I think it does not come without you know, risk and danger, and I think San Jose State will score some points in this game. So I think, I think you're right to see it as a potential trap, but I think Oregon State survives it.
I am very curious about Oregon State, right? Because I agree with you that they've got, uh, and Washington State too, a chip from the the Pac-2 situation. But it's interesting to contrast that with the other dynamic the Beavers are dealing with, which is preseason expectations, unlike we have seen for that program. I, I don't know when the last time they there was so much hype going into a, uh, a season in Corvallis, right? They won 10 games. They're they're ranked in the preseason AP poll. They've gotten a lot more attention, a lot more praise than uh, they have in eons. And so you do wonder, like, is that going to balance out with the chip on the shoulder factor so that they end up, you know, just being in the right state of mind? Or is one of those two dynamics going to kind of carry the day uh, emotionally for them? Because I, I do think that, you know, when you have an, an entire offseason w- with expectations elevated beyond anything the players have ever experienced, it can have an, a, an effect on your chemistry. And then here they come a few weeks ago with the with the, the destruction of the Pac-12 and that changes their their mentality as well. So it'll be really fascinating to watch not only this game for them, but how their whole season plays out. August 13th, 2001, cover of Sports Illustrated features Joey Harrington at Oregon, Ken Simonton at Oregon State, with the, with the headline, State of War. In Oregon, a national title is at stake. I think the expectations for the, the duality of the programs has very few times risen to where it is this season with two ranked teams in the preseason. You know, we, we can go back to 2008, 2009, where Mike Riley and Chip Kelly were mixing it up for a chance to go to the Rose Bowl. Uh, but few other times has both these programs been this good and this hopeful at this point. And so, was, you know, was Jonathan Smith the quarterback that year? He, uh, he absolutely was 2001. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he, and he remembers that they didn't follow the Fiesta Bowl season with a great year. I mean, they came back and, they kind of laid an egg, and, and, you know, they didn't fulfill sort of the uh, – they didn't finish the job. And so I – here's another thing. Like, I, I occasionally am in touch with Jonathan Smith. I have found him a little more distant this offseason. And I thought maybe it was because, you know, he was just trying to get away. He's trying to spend some time with his family. I think he does that. I think it's very important to him. But I also think – that he was doing a lot of thinking and a lot of planning and a lot of focus on the very you touched on, like the expectations of this season are going to be different. And I think he's been in that case. You know, they they went eleven and one and beat Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl, and then they came back with the Sports Illustrated cover, and they didn't really get the job done. And so I think that that may be ringing in the back of his mind and. I think you're absolutely right to kind of look at that. So that's why I think this this opener is super important for his team. And if they can beat San Jose State on the road, you look at the rest of their non-conference, it's UC Davis at home and it's San Diego State at home and then Washington State on the road and then home against Utah in week five. Like, you know, everybody looking ahead to week five. No, no, no. You, you, you need to be looking at Sunday. Absolutely. I think that... Th- that could be the last game of the week for the Pac-12 could end up being the best game of the week for the Pac-12, for the first and last, right? The Utah, Utah, Florida and Oregon State, San Jose State, fascinating bookends yep. to uh, to week one. If you want the rest of that podcast, you can grab it. Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. Get it wherever you find a podcast. All right. Tomorrow, I will be live from Rice-Eccles Stadium in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Florida will be visiting... Who will start at quarterback for the Utes? I'll join this show from the stadium. Judah Newby and Stephen Vaughn will be hosting. Uh, and uh, on Friday, uh, we will talk all about 
the weekend, and we will really set up and nail down our picks on this show. San Jose State, an Oregon State game is on Sunday. The Ducks will be playing Portland State on Saturday. It's going to be fantastic stuff. Great theater. And, yes, college football is officially finally here. Great stuff today. Grab a podcast of this show wherever you find your Bald Face Truth Radio Show podcast. And we are back tomorrow with another great show. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time.